All right, it's so good to be here. When it gets quiet, it's time to start. So I feel like this is a good time. I'm so honored to be here um, at the law school for this wonderful program in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. My name is Narina Melita, and um, I was told to be your narrator for the day, but that seemed a little ominous. So I'm gonna be your guide or your MC. If you need anything throughout the day, let me know what breaks. Um, aside from organizing these events as uh, part of the Montgomery County Bar Association, as well as the Gender Fairness Committee for the 3rd and 4th JD. I'm also the confidential law clerk to Honor Rebecca Slezak in Montgomery County Supreme. So the program is the result of my work, as well as John Kerr, Senior Advisor of Strategic Communication for the New York State Court System to try to put into practice a brilliant idea of Justice Lisa Fisher of the Appellate Division Third Department. Justice Fisher has recently taken over as chair for the Gender Fairness Committee for the Third JD from our previous fearless leader, Rachel Kretzer, whom we thank for her service and dedication. Um, the fact that more than 200 people registered for the program is really demonstrates that this topic of cultural awareness in domestic violence services is starting to generate the interest that it should. I know you're not seeing 200 people here. There's about, there should be about a hundred of you here and a hundred um, online. Um, there is a lot to go through. And so we will be addressing this issue from three different perspectives. The first panel will provide the victim as well as the academic perspective. The second panel will include a discussion from our community partners were involved in helping domestic violence victims. And the third panel will address how the court system has and continues to address culture when dealing with domestic violence cases. There is a lot to go through. And uh, before we get started, I do wanna make some administrative uh, reminders. Please ensure you sign in and out to receive your CLE credits, fill out your um, attorney certification attendance form and your evaluation form. The bathrooms are located to my left downstairs and one at the end of the hallway downstairs and I believe some upstairs to the right. Um, don't bring any food or drinks to the DAMC. And like I said before, if you need anything at all during breaks, let me know. We have an ambitious agenda and I'm eager to get it rolling. I do encourage you to look at the panelist biographies in, our, in your packages, they are extensive. As you can imagine, a lot of people and organizations have come together to help plan and co-sponsor the event. So I'd like to take a little bit of time to mention them. Your breakfast was provided by the Office of Court Administration through the Gender Fairness Committees for the 3rd and 4th Judicial Districts, chaired by Judge Lisa Fisher and Judge Tatiana Coffinger, uh, respectively. Other co-sponsors include Montgomery County Bar Association, National Association of Women Judges, the New York chapter, Capital District Black and Hispanic Bar Association, Albany County Bar Association, Capital District Women's Bar Association, Schenectady County Bar Association, Legal Aid Society, The Legal Project, Adirondack Women's Bar Association, and the Women in the Law section of the New York State Bar Association. Your lunch will be provided by Bella Carbone and Vincent LLP, as well as Cops Dipola Silverman PLLC. And a big thank you goes to them for their support and generosity. 
Last but not least, we're thankful to the Albany Law School Women's Leadership Initiative, Women's Law Caucus, and Government Law Center for providing the CLE credits. Special thanks to Shell Miller, Chell Miller, who has been instrumental in coordinating our efforts with the law school. Finally, a huge thank you to Albany Law School itself for hosting us once again. I'm pleased to introduce to you Albany Law School Dean Cinnamon Pinyon Carlon, who would like to say a few words before we start the program. Thank you and good morning. Uh, welcome to Albany Law School. We are really honored to be able to host you here and to have you here today. As all of us in the room and online know, domestic violence is an insidious problem that demands greater legal thought attention and resources. Here at the law school, we've really centered questions of domestic violence through our family violence litigation clinic, through the domestic violence clinic. And we have folks like Professor Connors, Professor Lynch, Professor Cheka, who are dedicating thought and resources and time over the years to this challenge. And so we are just honored and pleased to be part of this conversation. So I just wanna say welcome. Thank you for being here. And I hope that the conversations are deep and rich and lead to real change. So welcome to Albany Law School. Thank you, Dean. Next, I would like to invite Honorable Gerald Connolly, the Administrative Judge for the Third Judicial District to make the introductory remarks. Judge Connolly is a staunch supporter of the Gender Fairness Committee for the Third Judicial District and the programs it has created throughout the years. Judge. Thank you, Noreena. I am acutely aware that there are people who have much more important things to say to all of you here today than, than anything I have to say. But I, 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 one of the best things about being the administrative judge is I get to say for a moment um, what I think when I come to these or when I review one of these things that were uh, one of these CLEs, as we call them, that we're, that we're going to. And what I think is I, I, I want to thank people so much for putting on taking the time to work and to put together and to present this incredibly important topic. Uh, you know, we live in a nation of immigrants and some, sometimes we forget that, but our proudest moments, our best strengths are when we all come together, but those are merging cultures. And, and that's just what we are in this country. And, and we're unique in the world in being that way. And the ability to understand each other's cultures goes directly to the heart of what we hear in this room and online um, virtually, you know, but what we've dedicated our lives to. There, there are lawyers here, there are judges here, there are, there are employees of the court system, there are social workers. And what, we, what do we want? We, we, we all at our best moments think we want justice. And the way we get justice is by understanding what's in front of us and by having all of the facts before we make the decisions. And if we don't understand each other's cultures, we don't understand the cultures that people come from in coming and presenting themselves to us or in telling us about what's happened in their lives, then we don't have all of the facts and we may risk not doing justice. And you know, the importance of this is obviously demonstrated, the importance of what we're doing here and what our presenters are doing here um, is obviously demonstrated by the recognition of the people who have come to see this. And I, I, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, two other things, but one other thing in particular, um, one reason I wanted to be here was because I knew Marina would not thank herself, who, who, who has done an amazing job 
and worked so hard in putting this together. So if we can give her. Uh, just one last thing about, about our panelists. I, I know a few of them. Uh, and, you know, if, if they're representative, and I know they are, of the people who have taken their time to, to come and, and present to you, then we're, we're all incredibly lucky. Justice Fisher works as hard as anybody I know, and she still makes the time to lead our Gender Fairness Committee in the 3rd Judicial District. She makes the time to um, be open to everybody who, who comes to her, who wants, who wants something from her, to be out there coming up with ideas like this and putting together this presentation, despite working many, many hours in her office all the time going through her responsibilities to look at my work and make sure that it's up to par. Uh, I, I, I don't see Liz, Liz Cronin here, if she is. I, there she is. Hello, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Liz Cronin and I uh, are, are, are old and dear friends. I won't say how 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 old and dear, but but old and dear, and okay. uh, you know you, you look at her um, her resume and you see one line about her being a DA for some time period, and we were years ago, and what I can tell you from my personal knowledge is that uh, Liz and her colleagues, uh, before it was recognized by the world, I think um, they fought like lionesses for victims of sexual abuse, victims of domestic violence. And, and they did it every day with incredible amounts of work. And I have so much respect for what, for what you did during those years, Liz. And I think you're in just the right spot. Um, we have Ms. Reidinger here, who we're so proud of, one of our IDV people. I know there are judges, IDV, Integrated Domestic Violence Courts Judges, which is incredibly difficult uh, and, and work to do that they should be so proud of. And we have Samaya here. And you know, if you haven't met her, uh, stop and talk to one of us who knows her well later on. She won't say anything about the life that she's led. But um, if, uh, you know, if, if there were a just world, there would be statues of people like Samaya outside this, this place. So um, welcome to all of you. Thank you for, to all of you for doing the work to put this presentation on. And thank you for allowing me this moment to speak. Thank you, Judge. Right, so without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Justice Fisher, who will be our moderator for the first panel. Judge Fisher, as I mentioned, is an Associate Justice of the Appellate Division Third Department. She's also the first woman ever elected to Supreme Court in Greene County in 2014. She served as the Vice President of the New York Chapter of the National Association of Women Judges and has been a member of the Capital District Women's Bar Association since 2014. And recently in 2022, she was a recipient of the Judith K. Distinguished Attorney Award from the CDWBA. And um, help me uh, give a warm welcome to Justice Fisher for our first panel. Thank you again, all of you, for coming and for your support and attending the event today. Our first panel will explore the issues the issues of domestic um, of, of the, the survivor, the survivor's perspective. And over the next 50 minutes or so, we're gonna hear from four people who approach this from different viewpoints. We'll begin with a panel discussion and hopefully at the end we'll have time for questions. So first I wanna take the time to introduce each one of our panelists. Over to my left, we have Jaya Connors. Some of you might know her as Professor Connors. She's an associate professor here at Albany Law School 
and I know her from when she was the director of the family, um, the attorney for the child for the third department's um, program. She also is the director of family violence, violence litigation. Um, we also have next to me, on my far right, would be Danica Santana. Ms. Santana is an advocate and an assistant program director with Catholic Charities in Fulton and Montgomery counties and Montgomery County Domestic Violence and Crime Victim Services. And immediately next to me is Samaya Sharif Zada. Samaya is an attorney in Afghanistan, a legal advisor and a women's rights act activist. And she currently serves as a court analyst at the third judicial district office as part of the Justice for Career Opportunities Refugees Program, also known as JCORP. She is an amazing woman. I am so honored to have known you and I'm so grateful for your presence here today. Also, we have to my far left, Anna Brecker. She's a student here at Albany Law School who co-chairs the Women Law Caucus, who I admire also. I love that the Albany Law School has a Women's Law Caucus. I was mentioning to some of the members earlier today that back when I was in law school, there was no such thing. <laughs> so first, before I go to my panel members, I wanna talk about why we're here. I, we're, here to talk about culture. And, and before we talk about culture, I wanna to try to define it a little bit. A culture, a lot of times when we think of culture, we think of uh, food and music and traditions of people from a certain ethnic group, their religions, the things that are characteristic of people from a certain geographical area. And unfortunately, domestic violence is has invaded almost every culture in the world in some form or another. And including here, of course, in the US. But sometimes it's easy for domestic violence to go unnoticed if we aren't aware of what it looks like in different cultures. And like Judge Connolly pointed out, um, we can't do justice uh, very well for those people if we're missing, missing the bigger picture of what's happening to these people, the litigants that are before us. So first, I think I was gonna go to Jaya and ask you first, um, when you were director of family violence, as director of the family violence litigation clinic, I know you worked with immigrant survivors of intimate partner violence. What issues do you feel or did you see that were unique in the individuals that you serve? I think uh, it's very Can you hear me now? Okay, great. I just want to clarify, I was a former director of the Family Violence Litigation Clinic here at Albany Law School. The current director, Professor Cheka, is here in the audience, as well as staff attorney Erica Tomis. I'm both glad they're here. Um, I, I think, you know, when I think of culture, Judge, and when I think about the clients I've represented, I think the best definition that, that I saw, that I've seen, um, it was articulated by um, Sue Bryant and Jean Co-Peters in their article, uh, The Five Habits of Cross-Cultural Lawyering. Um, and, and they said culture is really, you know, the air that we breathe, it's, it's, it's invisible. And, and, and yet we depend on it for our very being. It, it, it's the logic, right, through which we give meaning to our world. And our culture, every one of us, is, is based on what we have learned from our experiences, our sights, the books we read, songs we listen to, the, the languages we speak, the gestures we make. Um, I use my hands a lot. Um, the rewards and punishments that are meted out to us. 
Um, we learn it from how, you know, what we eat, how we eat. Um, I grew up eating with my hands as a child, um, how we interact with others and how we're judged. And it, it, it shapes our values it, it, and our attitudes as well as our biases um, and it shapes our behaviors. So to me, that's culture. And I, and I think the question was, if I'm correct, um, in my former role as director um, and having worked with intimate partner violence, Hakim Suber, one of those, the issues that that I saw, um, first of all, every client I've seen has been unique. Um, I'm an immigrant. I was born in India. I was there till I was eight, and then I grew up in in Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, played hockey on the streets, they just skate. To this day, I still have, I'm a big fan of Bobby Orr, Tony Esposito. I speak a little French, I speak fluent Tamil. Um, I know every episode of the original Star Trek. Right? So, but when you look at me, when you see me, right, you see me through the lens of your culture. And you look at me in a, in a way that makes sense to you in terms of how culture reflects in the logic. I'm in a box. So every client that we work with in the in the clinic, um, I tried to use that same lens when I saw them. I did not want to define them by the country that they immigrated from, right? Um, and so I knew that that I had to look at each client individually um, and base my understanding of the client on, you know, fact investigation and interviewing. Um, and while there were, while each client was unique, um, there were certainly certain threads, certain um, issues that resonated for all the clients we represented, I think. The, the one issue that resonated for, for us was, you know, many of our clients um, who were immigrants were feeling isolated and were unable to move forward without the assistance of family members or community. Just to clarify, most of my clients were, were women and uh, the abusive partner were male. So, and even if the client's cases were were solid, the legal cases. Without that community support, I found that there was, you know, they had a very difficult time moving forward or even pursuing their case. While we knew they had a great case, it didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to pursue it because at the end of the day, they were not gonna have that support. And that was a huge factor in the clients that we worked with. The second was, um, for many of the immigrant clients we saw that their status was weaponized by the abuser. So they would take away their visas, green cards, any form of identification. So um, one of our clients was locked in her home and she took away the key. Um, and she was not, she was fluent in other languages, but not English. So to isolate, so they were isolated. And so without any form of identification, think about that. You can't get a job, you can't even get a driver's license. You can't go anywhere. They would take away the children's health insurance cards. That was one thing that we saw. I think the third thing that kind of resonated for us working uh, with survivors um, 
was, you know, they had a mistrust of the law enforcement system. And this was not really unique to immigrant clients. This also was something that many of our clients who were poor, black, or color, you know, their cultural, they had a cultural mistrust of law enforcement. And so even again, if they had a solid case, a lot of them did not want to pursue it. And for very good reasons. I don't know if that answers your question, Judge, but. You see, I remember going back to my days practicing as a public defender. <clears throat> I would see a lot of, uh, not necessarily that they were well, almost like you said, in prisons in their own in home. Part of it wasn't forcefully. It was just the fact that um, the husband would be out working all day. The mother would be home alone with the child. The mother has no, like you said, no ability to speak the English language, no driver's license to drive, you know, no ability to work. And so very much trapped in, in that situation. And also afraid, like you said, of not only law enforcement, but the fear of the Department of Social Services also, the fear that you know the department was just waiting to take uh, their children away from them. So there was all these impediments um, for them, maybe not only physically, but psychologically, that um, was really hard for them to come forward. I would agree. And I think that in, in some, of the, some of the cultures, um, including the one that I come from, you know, one of the issues that we saw was the one issue I remember, because I had a couple of cases like this, was the family would all sleep in the same room, like the mother, father, children. And that was something that I think that, you know, some of the Child Protective Services saw as problematic and neglectful. And so you would not only be trying to advocate on behalf of your client to find safety, you would be advocating against social service, the department, to ensure that they were not going to remove the children from the parent with whom the children felt safe. Thank you, Jay. Um, I'm gonna to go to you now, Samaya. Um, I've spoken to you a lot about um, your experience in Afghanistan. And um, I know you were an attorney there for like eight and nine years. And you, you saw a lot. So I'm gonna ask you about the culture and what you saw with respect to domestic violence. And I understand English is your second language, so you've typed your remarks. So if you feel more comfortable reading, that's fine. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. And I appreciate it for you, for your time coming here, especially the respectful and vulnerable judges and everybody. Uh, I'm sitting here to talk about domestic violence. But how can I not consider what's going on in Afghanistan now? Uh, the woman doesn't have the right to educate. The woman doesn't have the right to work. The woman doesn't have the right to go outside, even do their simple, simple works like grocery. We call this domestic violence. Or do you call this culture? Because none of them are. None of these uh, punishments that the evil government put on them are culture. And I cannot say simply domestic. Because domestic here is simply a mere black eye. But what if someone gave, take all of your rights as a human? And what if a, a group of tourists takes your 
right ability and your identity. I don't want to have lots of tears from me or maybe your Bible good culture part of the panel Domestic violence, in my opinion, is not confined to the walls of a home. It's an issue that's nurtured and grown within the households. When it reaches to a certain point, it begins to harm individuals emotionally and physically. Its root causes lies to the fabric of culture, no matter which country. No matter which country. Has Different countries have different kinds on, of domestic, at least they see different symbols of domestic violence. And there are numerous factors for domestic violence, in my opinion, which is war, poverty, lack of love, metagamy, and so on. Taking Afghanistan as an example, a country that has been grappling with forced wars for decades. All these factors are present, compounded by an extremist interpretation of law and women's rights and what they call <coughs> religion. And these uh, all are the themes of the Taliban. Domestic violence can happen to anyone, but it predominantly affects women. In Afghanistan, culture plays a significant role in various aspects of society, such as education, marriage, works, and so on. However, it's evident that culture has also perpetuated harmful practices particularly regarding violence against women. Failure to passing the law prohibiting violence against women in Afghanistan, there were numerous violence cases awaiting for legal judgment. For instance, women who tried to escape severe domestic violence would sometimes be killed by their own relative by the name of Connor Kelly. And there won't be any punishment waiting for them because there wasn't any law regarding that. In other cases, they would remain trapped at home for their entire life. Afghanistan has cultural practices that involve the abuse of women's rights, like honor killing, where male family members can punish the female family members by killing their them without any punishment. Additionally, but giving refers to resolving conflicts by giving care as a compensation to the lady. I'm gonna stop you right there. So in, there's honor killing, and then, so you're saying if you go to court, you can take one of the things that could happen if they could, I'm sorry, I didn't know. 
they can give somebody a child. No, escaping from harm from severe domestic violence is a crime based on. <laughs> so this crime may be the judgment for this crime from the family member and the society, not the law, is that they can kill you or they can put you in home prison for your entire life. And this is what we saw in far districts where there weren't any women's rights organizations, education, universities, schools, and there weren't that facilities that were in big provinces, especially in big cities. So you did have the courage to go to court and even if you were successful in court when you got home, it depends on the case, especially the family case. When it comes to family, it's a shame for the family that your daughter goes to court for a divorce. So it may be the punishment, maybe might be different based on the area that they are living based on how far they are from the court system, the government role, and the organizations that are launching. There's no line for this too. Dear Weller, but fortunately, recently by 2018, oh, I'm sorry, 2015, we passed a law for habitat violence. Was escaping from home was not a crime anymore, especially when it comes to severe domestic violence. And so on, honor killing law had punishments in the other cases. We recently find a law which now there isn't any law in the entire country, and there isn't any justice. They can do anything they want to the man and to women, and no one cares even the international doctor. Um, and can you explain any other um, In addition, I know you explained the honor killings, but what are additional in your in the culture forms of domestic violence against women? What other forms of attack? Uh, another is bad giving. It refers to resolving conflicts. They gave a girl or their daughter or their sister and it's in remote areas of Afghanistan. It's not around the cities and progressive problem. They will give the girl as a compensation to the lady girl. And the ones who receive the girl can deal with it with any kind that he wants, any kind of behavior, because it's like perfect. Yeah. Also, Badalakan is a form of exchange marriage where one person marries another's daughter or sister in exchange for their own sister or daughter. This practice highlights the urgent need for legal reform and cultural change to protect the rights and well-being of Afghan women. Forced marriage are another form of domestic violence prevalent in the country. Many women are denied the right to lose self-control. And access to that justice is scarce, which is now the Taliban forced the families to marry their daughters 
which is another kind of forced marriage. Women also face restriction when it comes to inheritance properties, mm -hmm. and they themselves are treated as physicians. Physical violence is rampant and used as a means to exert the control over women. Some women have even had their nose, ears, or hairs cut by their abuser partner. Some women have even, disturbingly, there have been cases where women have been burned after divorcing their abusive partner. In some instances, women who plead their homes to escape violence have disappeared without a trace, with no knowledge of your face or extent of the torture they may have endured. <laughs> Domestic violence in Afghanistan is not confined to a mere black eye or emotional abuse. It's behind comprehension. It's unexplainable for me. And I cannot say that simply at domestic violence because you are based on where you are, based on your knowledge and your information. You cannot imagine what domestic violence means even now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Demika, I'm gonna turn it over to you. I know that's tough to follow. What sort of culture of barriers have you encountered with your domestic violence victims? Um, it's hard for them to understand that what they experience based on culture is different in this country and there is health care. It may be limited because of their status, but they do have assistance. So trying to assist people who are in our 24-hour domestic violence shelters first be comfortable enough and safe enough to know that there's a, a window of opportunity. And um, counseling and trying to get people to share what's going on with them is difficult um, because their lack of trust. So trying to create a bond is a barrier. And that's common. Um, no matter what culture they're from, that's like a theme. No matter what culture. And do you see anything with the perspective different cultures play out in the victims that you help? Um, how do you deal with those things? So, um, yes. Once once we you know have established a bond, um, the next step is a financial piece and trying to get them um, some assistance. And again, based on their status, whether they have um, green card or a visa or are legally married to someone who is a part of the country, um, their sponsorships sometimes make it really difficult and trying to get that changed over. And again, it's time frames and places for them to go with need and social service assistance. They don't qualify for social services assistance. So there are churches and mosques and temples that will help, but 
that part is also dangerous because there's a connection amongst them. So like to try to connect someone to something that's familiar is also scary. Yeah, I, I can imagine if they're attending the same temple or a religious uh, place, all those people are in their community and that community, that culture might not accept, like Samaya had just said, that's a no-no. You're not supposed to go, you're supposed to just stay there and suck it up pretty much, right? Yes, and whether the the, the, the moms could be here in Albany or in maybe Montgomery County, there's still a connection which limits the, you know, her being able to go where she would like to be. Um, well, there's limited resources. It's not like they get to really pick necessarily. So that's a challenge, it sounds like. Yes. And, you know, housing as well. Housing is another um, limited resource with once you're finally in shelter and safe, trying to find somewhere to go with no financial assistance is really, really hard. Um, some years ago, I used to work for a different organization. I used to work for the YWCA. And I had a situation where if this woman didn't know someone um, that was willing to help her, she didn't have a place to meet to go to. So that was like, that was like her blessings though. Her son was able to go to school and that was a great thing. He's really successful today. But um, the housing piece and recently like, Legal assistance is also a little bit hard to come by um, for divorce, the part of divorce. Um, I know, and it's more so because of our COVID population and getting people back. So you think that the cultural aspect um, also is, is a barrier to the divorce or is it because of the language or is it just access, is it access to justice issue or? The trust part again, mm -hmm. the trust part and everything that you talked about um, is a major thing and being fearful because someone I was working with, everything that she said, the documents were taken. Um, but the good thing about the person that I was working with, she was able to make copies of everything that she had, which was a great backup. Not everywhere except copies, but it's a start. So she is. Um, successfully working with an immigration attorney as well as a divorce attorney now. So I'm truly, truly grateful for our services and what we can do to try to connect those pieces. But um, it doesn't happen often. I haven't worked with it often, but it, it happens. And I know a lot of it is because people are afraid to come forward. So this week we have been doing so much outreach to try to get people to know that there is help. It seems like the theme I'm hearing is a lot of it is everyone's afraid, can't trust authority. Everyone's afraid of their status um, and being sent back. It and sounds definitely like being sent back. And, and that's a barrier to come forward. In addition to all the other cultural things that are going on, families and religious organization, the community, the community they've established once they're here. Anything else you'd like to add? Okay. <laughs> I was going to turn it over to Anna. Um, before I ask questions of the panel, Anna, um, we all know that not all domestic violence is physical. Abuse can be emotional and psychological. What can you tell us about your experiences and the cultural aspects of non-physical abuse? 
Yeah, so to me, abuse and with working with domestic violence victims, it's not always what's, it's what's underneath, either emotional, psychological, as Professor Connor talked about, social isolation, even economic needs, um, especially in a family court context with custody cases and children involved, it's abuse that is extended onto the children. They see either the custodial parent they're with or the parent that's experiencing the abuse, whether it's the father or the mother, that the, it's being reflected onto the children. They're seeing this parent that is suffering from anxiety, depression, PTSD, again, things that aren't always seen. Um, and it's being reflected on that. And in a court system, as um, Judge Fisher just stated, we're seeing these common themes of people being scared to come forward based on their culture. Women in uh, that are being abused and are going through custody situations with their abuser are sometimes scared to come forward in a custody matter in family court because um, they're scared of what might happen to them. They're scared that, especially in rural, rural communities where maybe the abuser grew up, they're scared that that judge is going to look at them as allowing this abuse in their home, allowing this to happen, and therefore they are not the fit parent and rather the abuser. They're also scared that the abuser is using this custody battle as another form of control for them. It's all this emotional, this psychological damage that is coming from it. And sometimes these terms can get conflated, whereas emo but emotional is more of like tearing them down, telling them insults, um, public embarrassment, whereas psychological is twisting their reality. What they believe to be true, the abuser makes them think that that's not what their reality is. And it's hard for a victim and a survivor to come forward in these instances because the court can't see it. The court can't see what they're experiencing. They can only express it. Um, sometimes therapists gets involved, but again, it's not seen. And they feel that because it's not seen, it's not prevalent. They don't see themselves as victims always because it's something, it's not the bruises, it's not the black eye. It's all in their mind, which again, the abuser reinforces. It's this dichotomy that um, because these children are being back and forth between these parents that because there's no domestic violence on record, there's no bruises, there's no black eyes, there's nothing that they're okay with each parent that these parents are, um, or the abuser is the more fit parent, like I said, because they're not claiming the domestic violence. And I also want to touch on, we've all been talking about domestic violence, mainly with a male being a perpetrator and the female being the victim, but it's important to recognize that with psychological and emotional abuse, this is one of the most common forms of abuse that are used by women against men, and therefore women being the perpetrators and men being the victims in this case. And um, domestic violence isn't just against women, it's against the gender non-conforming, the LGBTQI plus community, women, men, it's against everyone, especially the psychological, the emotional, the social, the social isolation, the economic, and I think that's very important to point out. Thank you. Um, Jay, I'm going to go back to you for a second. Um, when you were representing children, how did um, a client's culture impact your representation of, of a child? I think the, the one disturbing thing that I found representing children for some of the cultures that I represented them in, um, were they identified with the abusive parent not the victim parent, um, which makes sense. Um, if you have a bully, let's think about a playground. If there's a bully there, you wanna be that bully's friend. You don't wanna be victimized by that bully. 
And when you have certain cultures, and I think that Samai have a speaking to that, when you have male children also, they identify with the male in the household. I mean, whether, and the most difficult thing was trying to, um, you know, communicate with children in a way, in an appropriate, age appropriate um, way to help them, but at the end of the day, given the constraints of what we are required to do as attorneys for children, right? You have to you have to support your client's position unless you can show that to do otherwise would result in substantial imminent uh, harm to that child. And that's a very hard um, standard to prove. You really have to try to minimize in the best way you could, try maybe getting therapy into maybe trying to get a support systems, sometimes working with educators to assist the families. Um, the judge, if I can just go back to the question that Anna was also talking about, sure. the court system, I think the other part of the psychological abuse is under the Family Court Act, you know, domestic violence is statutorily defined. You know, you know, it's, it's, the definitions are it's under the penal law, and you've got to show physical harm. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. So, when you have a client with psychological abuse, you have to somehow try to link it to the factors under Article Eight to have the court move forward on that. And that can be difficult. It can be very difficult, especially with somebody with psychological abuse who may not make the best witness. Right, and so those are some of the issues that comes up. Thank you. Do we have any questions from the from anybody in the audience that would like to ask any of our panel members? I don't see any hands raised. Oh, there we go. Just so it gets picked up on the video. Yes, I was just asking um, if there is a connection with legal assistance that um, gets individuals help through the VAWA um, visa process, the T visas, the U visas. Yes, I work with legal aid um, very much all the time, as much as we can. Um, but like, is limited based on your staff. Staffing, you said. Yes. So that's that's the barrier. Staffing. Good morning. Um, I guess my question is more around um, courtside training. And what sort of resources or training, mandatory or otherwise, is available to the courts on cultural responsiveness and ensuring that these individuals who are coming forward are in fact seen? I'm wondering what, what there is on the court side. I think we're going to address that in a later panel, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're focusing on more on the victims, so I don't have an answer to your question, but I know our next panel will, one of the ones that's coming later later this morning. Um, because that is a great point. I think one of the big, big takeaways from this probably is everyone's probably seen is 
is if you have a client that is from a, a, a different country or different culture than ours here in the US, it might behoove you to try to educate yourself as to what goes on in those cultures and what those societal norms are there and what you should be asking, because sometimes it might not be so obvious. You know, it might not be the black eye or it might not be the bruise. It might be something else that's going on. And it might be the fear of the ramifications that are going to follow if they go forward. So you need to be able to counsel, you know, your client so that they don't leave you the day of trial standing there alone in the courtroom and you've prepared and they're not there and you don't know where they are and they're not returning your calls all of a sudden. So all those things. And I think the best thing is education because as we've heard from you know our panelists, um, every culture is different and we all know that, but there's stuff that we can't even imagine like what Samaya was talking about when she told me about the stuff. I was, Lord, I've never heard of such a thing as an honor killing or or women being traded as property to satisfy a judgment or, you know, marrying off daughters. It, I mean, it was just totally outside of our comprehension because we just live in our bubble here in America sometimes, I think, and we just don't realize what's really going on in other parts of the world and, and where these clients that are coming uh, before us are actually coming from. Is there anything else you want to say, Samaya? Because you prepared a lot of remarks and I noticed they only got to one page of your, is there anything else you wanted to say? I want. I just want to clarify. I'm sorry. I just want to clarify what I say before is not African culture, because regarding African culture, women has the education rights. Women has the work rights. Women have every single rights that American women. But this is hardly an easy culture. It's not out. Thank you. Yes, presiding Justice Gary. Oh, someone else has a question. Sorry. <laughs> Just going to defer to you. <laughs> this question is to the uh, the advocate from a victim standpoint. Uh, what types of things do you want the judge to know and how do we learn about people's cultures? How do we learn um, from the victims uh, the things that we need to know to adjudicate the case properly? Go ahead, Tamika. If a victim is definitely working with an advocate, we probably have been working with them for some time, um, a lot of time. So we can kind of vouch for the individual and their their daily life and what they've connected with. Um, so it's almost like the advocate can write an advocate impact statement on behalf of the client that we work with. So, so, so I think if the court system, however, it's diverse at all, already, but if the court system be, have an open arm to the diverse community, the legal, legal professional will be more aware of what other countries and other cultures are dealing with domestic violence, like now I'm presenting out what's going on in Afghanistan or somebody from Yemen or somebody from other countries. If the court system have 
are or prepared opportunities for these minority groups, for these diverse people, then you may have more uh, opportunities to know and learn from the other aspects of domestic violence in the world. Good morning. I, I think my question is addressed to Ms. Santana primarily. And I'm wondering if you could address and, and speak about the availability of shelter and uh, safe spaces for women, particularly in rural communities, you know, it, and the limitations. Are there time limits that people can stay there and that sort of thing? The overall stay in a domestic violence shelter is 90 days. Um, and based on the circumstances of the individuals, it can extend up to 180 days if necessary. Um, the idea is to help the person get to some level of sustainability um, as long as they're able to. But in rural counties, like the, the Montgomery County DV shelter only holds nine beds. So that's individually for nine people, including children and infants. So once that space is gone, we try to connect with other surrounding counties for space. Um, but a lot of times they're full. Um, there are a lot of women who have multiple kids. And if an individual has six kids, there are seven spaces. And like Schenectady only has 20 spaces. So it takes up a lot of space. Um, and the alternative for the county is to put people in um, a hotel and is locally used by all services for homeless people, for people who are probably just coming out of jail. It could be anyone in the bedrooms or, excuse me, hotels. So it's not the safest thing. There are other agencies like a, a city mission. Sometimes they are individual organizations so they help as well on their own ways with domestic violence survivors. Then um, there are churches that help with other circumstances where they try to provide space. So I know this, um, we have recently been funded where we can try to help rapidly rehouse survivors and get them back in, you know, safe places. And it, it's just, it's very limited. So we try our best to get people where they need to be. So every county like has a DV shelter, but the space is very, and it's definitely difficult to get people in. I think take two more questions because I saw two two hands and then we'll have to give you the code for the people online and we'll take a short break after that. Thank you. This was a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. I just have a question for the advocates. In the counties in which you work, are culturally specific advocacy organizations connected to law enforcement so that when cases come up that involve specific cultures, there's somebody there to work with law enforcement at the very outset? <laughs> not that I have done, so I cannot answer that. Good morning, and wonderful panel. Um, I just just an observation, which has been apparent to me. I think most people for a long time, but I think it needs to be said, regardless of the culture, regardless of the country, um, regardless of the law. And the degrees of abuse, as you pointed out, psychological, 
the basic fact is women, no matter what the society is, are not honored, they're not protected, and um, they are disregarded. The degrees change, but that is the basic problem, I think, that we, we have to grapple with. Thank you, Marcia. Um, so we're, I'm going to give the code for the people attending online the first, and I've actually heard this word spoken through the panel, so it's appropriate. It's barrier, B-A-R-R-I, -R sorry, B-A-R-R-I-E-R, -R -R, barrier. Um, we're going to take a short break. I know there were some questions online, um, but I believe that the second and third panel are going to be able to better um, address those questions. So I'm just going to wait for you to hear the second panel and then post those questions there if they haven't been answered already. So right now it's uh, 10 o'clock. We'll come back just shortly before 1010. Thank you.
All right, so welcome back. As I said before, I think a lot of your questions are gonna be answered by the second and third panel. Um, our second panel will offer the community partners perspective. Will Rivera, our moderator, is currently the crisis intervention director at Options for Otsego, a company that provides services to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, violent crimes, and homeless, and at the risk. He is also co-president of the New York State Office of Victim Services Advisory Council and sits on several boards of organizations that advocate for the victims of crime. As you can tell, they're, they're very familiar with each other. They work together a lot. So um, they chose to sit at the table and make this more of a um, community grade. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll leave you in their capable hands. Thank you, Irina, and thank you, uh, everyone, for coming, and uh, Albany Law and all our partners uh, that sponsor this uh, for having us. I, I, I couldn't stand. I just think it's weird. Uh, these are my friends. I'm not going to harbor over them. Uh, so I'm just going to I just pull the chair and, and, and sit uh, next to them. So I hope I'm on, you know, on the Zoom world still. So we'll see. Uh, first, um, I just wanted to say uh, this panel here that I've, uh, it's an honor for me to uh, moderate this uh, and and have the privilege of of, uh, of um, presenting with uh, these three amazing individuals, women leaders uh, within uh, the victim service world. Um, uh, these are our experts in New York State. Uh, who, uh, for those are that are representing. Uh, providing services and supporting victims. Um, and I will let them introduce themselves. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for having us. I'm thrilled that uh, Albany Law School is promoting this program during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I'm Elizabeth Cronin. I am the director of the New York State Office of Victim Services. Um, I'm an attorney. And prior to that, I was uh, an assistant DA in Westchester County for 14 years, and I also worked at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan as the legal director there for many years. Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here um, with all of you and also all of my fellow panelists. I'm Lindsay Cruzan Muse. I am the director of St. Peter's Crime Victim Services here in the Capital Region. Um, in my role where I've, I've actually been with the program for 16 years, um, so in my role, I have direct oversight over seven departments uh, that comprise about 140 staff who are nurses, prevention educators, therapists, caseworkers, et cetera, who are working to either prevent or respond to all different types of crime. Um, I feel really privileged to work with this, the team that I do um, in my own program and also statewide. And I'm really proud of the program that we've built within St. Peter's Health Partners um, to serve all victims of crime. I think in a lot of different healthcare settings, we hear a lot about uh, services for people who are sexual assault victims. And we've done a lot of work, particularly this last seven years, to really expand the scope of what we do to make sure we are reaching domestic violence, the intimate partner violence victims as well. So I'm looking forward to talking. And I'm really proud of my staff too. So <laughs> I didn't know it needed to be said, but I am. Hi everyone, I'm Remlo Parthasarathy. I'm a managing attorney at Empire Justice Center. I'm also the project leader of the Crime Victims Legal Network. There are a ton of flyers and palm cards out there about the Crime Victims Legal Network. I encourage you to take them because I don't want to bring them home with me. Um, um, I am. Um, 
Will, Lindsay, and I happen to be on the advisory council of um, OBS, and so we do know each other really well, and I hope you, thank you for inviting me here, and I hope you um, learn a lot from us. Oh, I didn't know if I was introducing myself. Uh, uh, so uh, my name is uh, Will Rivera, and uh, everyone always asks you, what do you do? So the way I explain it is, you know how on Mondays you're going to go to work and you're like, oh, man, what am I going to get myself into today? Well, I've been doing that for 24-7 for the last 17 years, uh, responding to victims of crime uh, and those who are, who are unhoused. I do that by providing um, uh, you know, trauma-informed services, advocacy, counseling, housing, uh, and and bringing in millions of dollars and grant funding to my local communities. Um, uh, so that's how we, we assist them. Uh, and I did want to just set the stage, you know, when we talk about, you know, domestic violence, it, there's, you know, we're not just talking about, um, you know, a, a relationship between a man and a woman. It really encompasses and intersects with gender-based violence, sexual violence. And, and we have to understand that those that are in marginalized communities, people of color, uh, you know, they they face these victimizations at rates three times higher than those uh, that are white. And we have to recognize that and also understand that these populations uh, of marginalized groups are under attack right now. You know, they're under attack for being different and they're being victimized at increasingly alarming rates. Um, so I'll start the questions now. Uh, so some people might think uh, we're only talking about uh, the immigrant community, but there's also domestic culture nuances in, in the DV spectrum. What is culture and what does culture play in DV? I'm going to start this one. Um, the first panel and um, Professor Connors did a really nice job explaining about culture. But, uh, but I, I just want to kind of expand upon that a little bit more. We all have multiple identities, identities based on our gender, our race, our country of origin, um, our ethnicity, our religion, our education, um, where we where we live, geography in terms of the Northeastern, deep South, rural, suburban, and culture is basically those commonalities and those shared experiences based on those identities. So I don't want you to think there's only one, you only have one culture, you have multiple cultures. And, and of course, if you have multiple identities and multiple cultural experiences, every victim of domestic violence has a, there's a cultural component to that. So regardless of whether you're coming from, um, you're, you're like me, you're, you're an immigrant, and um, Professor Connors, um, my grandparents are from Tomonat, I'm from Kerala. Um, if you're an immigrant, uh, if you're an immigrant, you have a certain culture, but you could have culture here. Um, and I think that's really important to know. Um, one of the things that we should have given you this as a handout is the power and control wheel. The power and control wheel is like the Bible when it comes to domestic violence. It explains that it's not just physical abuse, it is emotional abuse and psychological abuse, it's financial abuse, it's sexual abuse, and um, how domestic violence is that use of those fear and terror tactics to keep someone within a relationship. It, it controls them and it's basically power over another person. If you Google power and control wheel and the word culture, you will find a power and control wheel, a cultural power and control wheel, which has that power control in the middle. And outside that you have two more circles that shows how 
our institutions and our culture allows domestic violence to happen. Now, I want, I want you to just pay attention to this for a second. The, that power and control wheel and the culture power and control wheel was created by Americans, Alan Pence and Michael Paymar. They recognize that our Western society also promotes and allows domestic violence to happen. So please don't think that domestic violence only happens in other cultures. It happens in our cultures, our culture too. And so regardless of who your client is, you need to know that there's a cultural component to um, domestic violence. It's how, um, it's how a person, uh, a victim might perceive what's happening to them as abuse. It might be the tactics that the perpetrator uses to control the victim and might have a cultural component to it. It might be the ability for a victim to escape the abuse might have a cultural component to it. Um, not to promote something that I wrote, but I think it might be part of your, um, your, your handout three pages, take a look at it. It's actually quite good, if I can say it for myself. <laughs> and enjoy, Grandpa. Uh, th thank you. And it really just talks about, regardless of who your client is, can you talk, you should ask them about, does your community, does your society, does your cultural um, community, uh, uh, do they support you? What does it mean for you um, to, to seek help? Forget about leaving your abuser, seek help. Is that permissible? Um, what, uh, how, how is that going to affect your life? Is it safe for you to do so? Um, because it may not be, or you've got, you've got someone that has your back, has your back and that's important to know. Um, before I turn it over, I just want to mention, um, earlier in my career, I worked with the Catholic Diocese of Western New York. We, the reason why we, we work together is we trained priests when it came to um, domestic violence. And the reason why we did that is because clients kept on calling um, um, uh, people and saying, you know, I'm, I'm asking my priest to help me out with this. And they just say, pray and stay in this relationship. And I'm not giving them options. And again, Western New York, I'm not talking about different cultures, I mean, or different, different countries, different country of religion, it's Western New York, um, where I'm from. Um, and so just understand there is a religious, sorry, there's a cultural component to all your victims and be aware of that, be, just be aware of that. No? Okay. Uh, okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Emma, so much. Uh, the panel includes uh, many community partners representing many professions, which might interact with a survivor of domestic violence including community-based legal programs, healthcare, and the state. Can you discuss how the culture within your own profession impacts working with domestic violence survivors? Lindsay, you can answer, please. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we're talking about cultural responsiveness, and we've talked a lot about culture with the victims, survivors, clients, whatever term we're using that we're working with. But we really wanted to also take some time to think about what about our own professions and what about ourselves? Because in order to be, to do this work in a culturally responsive way, we have to sometimes look inward and be self-reflective and consistently be doing that. So when you talk about the different aspects of culture, you know, values and beliefs, language, symbols, rituals, norms, we have that within our own professions. And so in your roles and our roles, we're interacting with a multidisciplinary team. Survivors are interacting with a multidisciplinary team of people 
who are there to respond to their needs, whatever those might be. Um, and so, you know, in our own work, we have found that there is a culture that we need to be aware of. And perhaps we need to really look at that to make sure that we are serving survivors of domestic violence well and appropriately. So for example, healthcare, that's where I live in my profession. Um, I am not a nurse, uh, but I do, you know, I do operate within that type of community. And there is an absolute culture in healthcare, especially right now, especially post-COVID. It is very busy. There is a, a hustle culture among nurses and physicians and, and all of the folks that we're interacting with. And um, we're really fortunate in New York State that there's actually a New York State public health law that requires that hospitals are screening every patient who comes through their doors for domestic violence. They may not be there presenting that as their you know, chief complaint, but they have to get a screening. But what does that screening look like? And how does that actually play out? So for example, um, you know, you can say, well, I'm following the letter of the law, I did the screening, but how did the screening happen? Did it happen in a busy waiting room in front of other people? Did it happen in triage while codes are being called? How was it delivered? Was it, you know, are you safe at home? And, you know, without even looking at the patient. So that's one of the things that I know we've really worked on in our own system, and we still have work to do, um, is really changing the, the culture around the hustle and the bustle when it comes to these really important conversations with patients. If you are not looking someone in the eye and they know that you really want to hear and you care what they have to say back, a survivor of domestic violence, they're not going to tell you, yeah, yeah, I don't feel safe at home. I really don't. Um, so I, I think that that's a really important piece that we wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to bring forward that we need to do our own introspective work and our own work within our own systems to look at how can we better serve survivors and how can we be culturally responsive in our own cultures to their needs. I love that you bring that up. I actually love this whole discussion because I think it's so much broader than maybe it appeared on the surface. Um, I remember going for a physical at one point and my doctor asking me if I was okay and if anybody was hurting me and I thought, wow, you know, we've come a long way. And I said, no. And then the subject was dropped. And I thought there could have been much more discussion here because I'm most likely going to say no, right. Even if I'm being abused. And so he was relieved that I said no. And, um, and I thought, okay, more needs to be done, but at least the questions can be asked, you know, they're, they're looking for something. Um, but of course, when you have 15 minutes with the doctor, it's, it's not giving you much. So um, we look at culture from a couple of different vantage points. Um, one is the culture of our office. You know, obviously as the Office of Victim Services, we're serving all victims of crime in the state of New York. So it's far broader than domestic violence. But what we realize is that domestic violence intersects so much of the work that we do, um, that whether it's child abuse or elder abuse, there's often a domestic violence component to it that many victims are poly victims. And that, you know, we can't just be looking for what we consider kind of a typical standard domestic violence victim, that it's a much bigger issue than that. Um, and so part of it is like, what is our office culture in, in assessing cases and in working with them? So we're responsible for funding victim assistance programs for providing financial compensation. And many of our staff are on the phone talking with people. 
And um, one of the things that I was hearing from some of the advocates from our funded programs is that they weren't sure that all of our um, investigators who speak with clients or speak with advocates um, really understand the dynamics of domestic violence. And so we have launched um, internal training to make sure that they understand the power and control that they understand the dynamics and that they can speak in a more um, informed way and a more sensitive way about these kinds of, of cases. And then we're culturally aware of who are providing the services. So we have to make sure that, you know, across the state, like Remel was saying, where you have rural areas, suburban areas, urban areas, they're very different. The dynamics are different, the needs are different, the gaps in services are very different. And so, um, who are the people that are in these communities and how are they being served? So in a very small community where everyone knows each other, they're gonna be loath to go to a program where like their next door neighbor works there or something. So we have to be informed about communities when we're thinking about where we're putting our funding and then making sure that all these different cultures are represented. So, you know, we'll, we fund LGBTQ specific programs, we fund, uh, like here in Albany areas in our own voices. Um, and uh, we fund some in the city. We fund programs for Arab Americans. We fund programs for Asian women. I mean, really trying to um, be as inclusive and responsive as we can so that people, because we know, right? We go to people that we feel comfortable with, who we trust. And we also have to make sure that those programs are um, language accessible, that our staff is language accessible, um, that our, our services are. And um, as a, I'll just end with this, um, as a, I was a special victims prosecutor for 14 years, and we dealt with a lot of, of domestic violence cases. And um, culture, um, just as Samaya was talking about, was very important because a lot of times people did not want to cooperate with us. And you know we're busy, and we got a lot of people that are behind. And you know we're like, okay, I can't just move this person to the side. Like I have to understand what's happening um, with them, like uh, meeting them where they are, but understanding my role is to enforce the law, and getting them to understand that that's my role, you know, and that um, it may be this way someplace else, or this may be the way you view it but this isn't the way it is in the state of New York. And therefore I have a responsibility. So how can we work together to do this? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of informed how I've done the work at the Office of Victim Services and work with programs, because these are all funded programs of ours, um, is tell us, you know, they're all on the advisory council, tell us what's happening um, with your communities and how we can be more responsive. Uh, Narina, I think we're gonna need more than an hour uh, with us four up here. Um, uh, as I, I do want to sh share uh, the topic of culture and 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 the victim and survivor experience that you know all of us up here center our work. Uh, we call you know victim uh, survivor centered work uh, around uh, the experiences for them, how they're looking at things, how they're being treated, and I just ask you all 
uh, to think that way, as well as you uh, interact with victims or looking at policies or procedures, is is their experience, right? And implementing uh, their experience. And I also will share and ask is that including them at your discussions, you know, when you're having these policy meetings or, or, or development of anything innovative is making sure their voice is heard and also including people of color and diverse populations, you know, with within the benches, you know, or, or within your ADA bar associations or whatever, and not just including them, allowing them to make decisions and to be heard. Um, next question. What, what do you do to prepare your staff to work with people from different backgrounds and cultures? Uh, Remla, would you like to start? So um, you probably all have attended or gone to or heard of you know cultural competence trainings. And I know that was really big uh, a few years back. And I remember going to uh, training specifically to Native American communities and other particular communities. I, I, I wanna, um, that is not a bad thing, but I think what's really important is to really learn and really to embrace that notion of, of cultural humility. And cultural, because cultural competency is this notion of we could um, learn about, become knowledgeable um, about and understand various cultures. And I love that idea, but the reality is you're not gonna be able to learn every single eligible culture. I just mentioned um, um, Professor Connors and I are both South Indian women. We are both immigrant women. Um, I don't speak Tamil, but I sure as hell understand it. And our experiences are probably going to be very, very, very different. Um, and you cannot assume just because you understand who I am that you're going to understand who she is. And I, I think everyone can say the same thing. Um, cultural, so cultural um, competence takes you so far, but cultural humility is what you really need. And that's that that um, openness and that willingness to say, I want to learn about you and your uniqueness. And I will keep the victim's experience, the client's experience at the center of what I'm doing. It's also that ability, I think Lindsay, uh, I talked about it, um, to understand your own biases and your own belief system and your also your own cultural viewpoints to say, how is that impacting the way that I'm seeing this individual? Because um, I know as an attorney and I hear, I see a domestic violence victim, I immediately think, okay, order protection, we're getting you custody, we're going to file for divorce. And, and this person here might be saying, because it's their culture might say, you don't talk back to your attorney, will nod their head, yes, 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 and I'll never see them again when they leave that room. Um, what is safe for them to do and what is culturally appropriate for them to, uh, to do? Um, where will they have their, who will have their back? Um, and it's, it's those kind of conversations need to be had. And I think those kind of uh, experiences need to be um, understood. Um, so, you know, I think we do, so I agree fully with everything that Ramla said. I think cultural humility is really what we try to embrace in my organizations and, and what we're, what work we're doing. You know, we really try to train people to be um, aware of their own biases and give people space to process that. So, um, you know, one example, we have um, a statewide um, training center for forensic examiners. So, sorry, Elizabeth, it's not funded by OBS. I'm sorry, I'm talking about enough. <laughs> so it's, we're really fortunate. And so we are able to offer no cost sexual assault forensic examiner training to 
um, individuals across New York State who are providing medical care. And as I mentioned, we actually have expanded our scope and we also work and provide um, intimate partner and domestic violence forensic examiner training. And at our training center, one of the things we can offer is to actually have a mock interview, a mock um, exam done. So, and that's actually recorded. And so the examiner will be recorded with an actor going through the exam protocol, um, asking all the questions and be able to sit and then watch how they interacted with that, that mock patient to see, you know, did I pause where I should have? Did I look at them in the way that I should have? Did I ask the questions in a way that gave them an opportunity to respond? Did I create a safe space? And then also hear feedback from the actor themselves. And I was actually, I was just traveling with um, a manager of one of our forensic examiner programs who has been doing this work for literally 30 years. She has done over 2000 forensic exams. And she said that one of the most impactful training opportunities she had was recent. She traveled to another state and she did the same type of thing where she was videotaped, you know, doing her interview with a patient. This was a training on domestic violence, um, working with domestic violence patients. And she said, Lindsay, it was shocking to me. I just was going through the chart, going through the chart like I always do. And I missed, I missed that she said over and over and over that she was concerned about her jewelry box, concerned about her jewelry box. And there was a reason she was saying that. And so she was able to then watch herself on tape and reflect, oh my gosh, like I missed a really critical piece that you know she was trying to explain to me. So I think creating opportunities where we're not just self-reflective, but we're actually, you know, perhaps criticizing ourselves a little bit on, you know, how we interact because we think maybe we're doing a great job, but when you see yourself, um, you know, from a different vantage point, you can pick up on things that you might want to change. You know, the other thing that is really great, as I mentioned, there's a public health law in New York state that requires that healthcare um, or hospitals screen every patient who comes through their doors for domestic violence. There's also a required training piece to that. So it requires that not only is everyone screened, um, and that any patient who screens positive, positive for having, um, you know, concerns about domestic violence is connected to a service provider. And in our hospital, we actually send someone in 24 seven, a, a social worker in to connect with them. Um, it also requires that every single staff person in that hospital is trained, is trained on domestic violence. So it's not the answer to everything, but it's at least a step in the right direction, right? So we talked about, you know, being aware of our own cultures within our own professions. And I think that is at least the beginning of hopefully some change that we can see where I sit, which is in healthcare. So we do a lot, well, we do as much training as we can. Um, we don't, our federal funding does not allow us to train in-house. So, um, and because our state funding is so much less than our federal funding, it can be a challenge. So we do the best that we can. But one of the things that I found is modeling for my office so that they see from the top um, how I look at things. And so I'm always sending out silly emails. You know, we celebrate National Chocolate Day and the other day it was National Pasta Day and, you know, just silly stuff. Um, but Whenever there's an observance, I also note that and I give some historical background and stuff. So I send out a lot of stuff about um, transgender commemorations or celebrations. 
Um, and uh, one day a staff member came to my door and said, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. So he came in and sat down and, and he said, um, you know, I, I just want to tell you that I'm a trans man and that um, I'm telling you this because I feel supported here because you're always sending out these emails about us and that OVS supports them. And so you have so much impact on people that you don't even recognize sometimes. And it's, it's sort of about setting the tone internally about what you support and celebrate and won't tolerate as well, um, that's important. So, you know, in addition to the training aspect of it, it's really about what does this agency stand for? You know, we talk about our mission, our values of, you know, what does this agency do and why do we do it? You know, why are we here? Um, and, and making sure that they understand, you know, we support them so that they can support the victims. Thanks for reminding me, uh, Elizabeth. Um, our organization, uh, most of you, I, I believe, should have something in your organization about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have a, a DIA committee, DEIAA, standing for accessibility committee in our organization. And we pulled together an LGBT, LGBTQ plus um, training for our, our staff regarding this. Um, we also, our organization did um, a deaf culture and domestic violence training as well. Um, I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but it's a really important opportunity to uh, set the tone for your organization to let people know that this is important. This is this is very important because if we understand these issues um, amongst ourselves, uh, we can reflect that with the clients that we. We had a deaf employee and um, I don't think any of us were um, able to do sign language. So we asked our HR department to put on a training for us so that we could show this employee that we were working toward, I know proficiency maybe, but just so that we could communicate um, with him in his language a little, you know, um, so offering staff that kind of an opportunity. And going back to cultural humility for a second, I just want to give you just a, a, a quick example if I have like two minutes. Um, this was a long time ago, but I was uh, interviewing therapists on behalf of someone else from my community who in our in, in my community, Hindu community, um, immigrant community, we don't know. You just don't. And so I was trying to find um, a, a good therapist for them. And I was interviewing uh, someone. And um, after one session, I came back from the second session. And this therapist, a white, um, older woman, was really excited She when I came back for the second time. And she said, OK, I didn't know a lot about your culture. This is what I learned in the last week. And she st started telling me what she learned. And she checked in with me each day saying, "Is that does that apply to you? Do you, does that apply to you? Um, how does that, uh, uh, can you explain to me more about it? And we chose her. Like, why wouldn't we chose her? That's, I think, just a clear example of culture, uh, cultural humility. And I just wanted to um, remember to throw that in to show you it's not difficult. 
thank you, everyone. Uh, as you can see, we provide a lot of services uh, for our victims of domestic violence. Uh, we could always use more money, please. And uh, so advocate always for more funding. Um, uh, with these services, uh, Elizabeth, can you please uh, talk about how attorneys and judges may uh, connect with us? Sure. So one of the things I am most proud of in the 10 years that I've been with the Office of Victim Services is the collaboration with Remla and our whole team. We applied for a federal grant and we got three successive grants to um, develop a uh, online tool for um, communities outside of New York City because New York City has a lot of resources and they're easier to access than in um, other parts of New York. Um, and so we created what Remla will talk about, the Crime Victim Legal Network, um, which is just extraordinary. And um, it allows victims, lawyers, judges, whoever, to access a lot of information um, about programs and, and all kinds of information, get warm transfers, um, for uh, attorney access. What, what we did was to get attorney uh, participation in the program, we required if they have, for organizations that take money from us, if they have attorneys, they had to participate in this program, which made for a nice um, funnel. Um, and uh, so that was um, one of the programs that will be very, can be very helpful for attorneys and judges. Also, um, on our website, there's something called, um, it's the Concern Center. So if you go to our website, let me get the, I'm never sure I say it right. It's obs.ny.gov slash connect. Um, and this has a list of all the programs that we fund in the state of New York. And it lists it by what we call the concerns that somebody would be looking for assistance with. So. And it's done in plain language. So you don't have to say, I am a domestic violence victim. It's like my husband's hitting me. And you can find a program that does those services in the area that you need to get services. So um, it's a user, pretty user-friendly tool um, and has all that kind of information um, for victims and anybody else looking to refer somebody for services. So the New York Crime Victims Legal Network that uh, uh, Elizabeth had talked about, um, we basically are partnership organizations that are trying to connect victims of crime with civil legal information and resources and assistance. And we do that primarily through the online resource called New York Crime Victims Legal Help. That's the flyers and the prompt cards that I have out there. It's 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 a really nice website. It has um, information about know your rights um, information. Um, think about all the different issues, civil legal needs that a crime victim has that the criminal justice system doesn't address. So even if the case is being prosecuted, victims still might have ha housing concerns or concerns about money and finances. We have some information on our side about that. Um, we also have something called the Legal Help Directory. That's where Elizabeth had mentioned all the, the OBS funded organizations who are receiving funding funding to provide attorney services, they're listed there. So what's really nice is you could just basically go to our legal help directory and click in like uh, Erie County order protection and all the organizations that help can help um, 
show up. The ones that have a little tag, a green tag that's called um, partner organization, those are the organizations funded by Elizabeth. So you know for, for a fact they should have an attorney who's able to help. Even if they can't fully represent, they should at least be able to um, advise and um, advise and counsel, provide advice and counsel or information referral, do something. Um, unfortunately, there are some counties that just don't have any civil legal services. Um, I think Tioga, Tioga, um, Skyler County, we really help in those organizations. Um, but um, even though that website was developed for victims of crime, advocates have been using it, other attorneys have been using it. It's a really nice way to be able to say, I can't help you with this, but here's someone else who can, and here's some information. Um, the site was developed so that um, it doesn't have all the information you need. It has just enough information you need and you refer out. We have tried as much as possible to plain language it. We could do a better job plain language it uh, because being attorneys, it is kind of hard. Um, and we're trying to update it on a regular basis as well. Thank you. Elizabeth, uh, as a follow-up from the, the last panel, um, how can community partners, attorneys uh, in the court system uh, best serve uh, victims of domestic violence? I talk to a lot of advocates um, and they still express concerns. Um, for example, someone called me the other day and said, for those of you who work in this field, um, you may be familiar with the Nicholson case, um, that they're still seeing judges who are not following it or that you know, CPS is going in and taking kids away from moms who are experiencing domestic violence. That case is pretty old. Like we need to get beyond that, you know? Um, and so having this connection between victim services and the civil legal community is one of the best ways because those lawyers know, they know what needs to be um, happening. And um, there really needs to be, and this is no offense to my wonderful friends in the judiciary, but um, when I was litigating, um, there were some really frightening things said by judges. And now, granted, that was a while ago, and I, I certainly hope that things have gotten better, but um, I had a, a female judge, there, uh, Judge Connolly will probably know who this is, but um, who said, uh, to a rape victim on the stand, well, you know, what you were wearing. Um, so like we haven't we haven't come completely <laughs> around to where we need to be. So um, I think better training needs to happen at all levels. Um, and there has to be reporting mechanisms when this stuff is going on. Um, and you know, organizational connections with legal services um, in order to make sure that these kinds of mistakes are, are not being um, repeated. And, you know, some great work is happening. Like in Westchester County, where I live, they're doing um, this, they've gotten incredible amounts of funding for lethality assessment programs that is incredibly successful. They have um, trained all the police departments, you know, every aspect of community has to be engaged in this work or it's not going to work. It's the same way when you're, you're working on gun violence and stuff, you have to engage everybody. And, you know, statistics show horrifyingly that so many of the mass shooting cases 
are committed by someone who has had prior domestic violence involvement. And Remla and I know about, you know, we responded to the Buffalo um, shooting a, a year ago. And, um, you know, so many of these cases, if, if people have been paying attention to what was happening with this individual, maybe that's a mass violence case that could have been averted. So um, it, it takes everybody at every level of your community um, in order to really eliminate or eradicate or at least lessen um, the devastation of domestic violence. Because you're gonna see it everywhere. You're gonna see it with older people. You're gonna see it with children. You're gonna see it at every level of this um, family unit. And um, you know, then you're gonna be raising a generation. I mean, we're already raising traumatized kids between shootings and pandemic, but you know, you're gonna be raising a traumatized community of children if, if we don't address it. So just to echo Elizabeth, I think collaboration and partnership um, is so critically important you know, across disciplines. Um, the other thing I, I wanna say is take this seriously. And I'm not saying you folks don't, I, you're here, you obviously do. We have seen so many individuals who truly could have died um, because they were strangled and they you know, were discharged from hospitals without getting the strangulation protocol assessment they needed, the CT scans, all of that. These are very serious cases and we need to take this seriously as a community. Um, and also recognize each of our roles. And we recognize that, you know, the role of, you know, our advocates and our forensic examiners is very different than the role of the court and attorneys. We, re we understand that, but there is a way for all of us to come together and to learn together, to cross train each other so that we better understand what resources exist in our own backyard. So that if someone is coming through our doors who needs help, we are not scrambling to say, well, you know, let me see what I can find. We already know. And the person we reach out to or refer them to may not be exactly what they need, but they can definitely help connect to the resources that that victim, survivor, client, patient, whatever term we're using is in need of. Um, and we're, we're fortunate, I will just say our victim services community in New York State, it's expansive. I mean, there's what, 240? funded victim assistance programs, but we are actually a very small, tight-knit group. We all, we know each other. They're all in coalitions yes. and the coalitions talk. Yes. So the other thing that I want to highlight is that, you know, if um, if you are in one part of the state and you need help uh, for someone who's, you know, potentially lives elsewhere um, in New York or even a different state, still reach out to those folks in your own community who you have made connections with, because in all likelihood, they know programs um, wherever that survivor needs to be served and they can help. Um, and at least also be someone who that survivor can talk to and say, Hey, I'm not the one that is, or my program isn't the one that's going to help you, but we have this vast network of people out there. Can say, um, I am also familiar with resettlement organizations, um, or organizations that work primarily with immigrant, uh, victims who, orient or they do an introduction of US laws to those victims. Um, so they know that no judgment of what you have, um, your belief system, you practice in your, in your country, but here in the United States or here in New York State, here are the laws. And so um, I think 
knowing if your community partners, your community members, your, those organizations do that um, will, will be helpful for you too, especially if your attorneys or your judges, you know, are they doing this so that when they get arrested or CPS gets involved, they're not surprised. Um, I also know, I think there was a question before with the previous panel, long, long, long time ago. I don't want to tell you how long ago. Um, I interned at an organization in Chicago that primarily works with Asian and Indian um, uh, victims of domestic violence. Um, many of them did not speak English. Um, all of them had, almost all of them had husbands who were doctors and engineers. And um, when the, the victims needed to call um, 911 and police came, um, they couldn't communicate with the police and it was the, their husbands um, and had the degree and had the ability to talk to say, I'm sorry, my, my, my wife is crazy or my wife wouldn't know what she was doing and the police just walked away. And again, this was a long time ago, but someone had asked, are, are there connections? I think now a lot of these programs that provide culturally specific services do have connections with the police. And um, yeah, and I think that that makes a huge difference as well. That's all the training that that's going on the last two decades. And you have to meet people where they are. So we're collaborating with a number of state agencies, such as the Department of State that has the Office of New Americans. So I reached out to them and said, we have all these people that are coming through you. Like, what information can we give you so that they know that their service is available? You know, it's it's being creative about how you know you can do this better you know, how you can reach people is just taking people that are already doing that work and kind of you know enhancing what they're already doing and also just to add recognize where that survivors are of domestic violence are going to go to different places right not every survivor is going to make the same choice one might go to law enforcement to report another might choose for whatever reason to you know, disclose to their, their doctor or not. They also might go to their church. So to Remla's, you know, point earlier about working with the, the Catholic diocese. Or their neighbor. Right, or their neighbor. We also need to think outside the box and recognize that you know, not every survivor um, is the same. Again, we all have different cultures. We come to this work with different cultures and different cultural identities. So do survivors. And so that will lead them to different places to seek help. So we, we need to think outside of the traditional and really like think about where else do we need to make sure people are ready to, to survive, to serve survivors and respond to their needs. Well, I'll give you an interesting example. So the Amish community is very insular and it's designed that way and it can be insular by language, by custom, by culture. And there was um, an organization, I think it was in Ohio, because there's a large uh, Amish population in Ohio. And so they were thinking, how can we reach people? Because a lot of women, if they were going to report domestic violence, they had to report it to the head bishop of their community. And if you had a bishop who was open to it, fine. If not, then you were out of luck. Um, they created a cookbook with domestic violence resources in the cookbook, in their language, because they thought the man is never gonna open the cookbook. <laughs> and so it was like such a creative way of reaching people in a way that was not threatening. And it, the information was there if they wanted it, and it was gonna still be there, you know? And so if 
circumstances changed and, and they wanted to access it, they would have that information. So it, it's just being really innovative in the way we serve. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, so I know we were supposed to give you a time. We're running down, I'm sure. Uh, but if there are questions and answers, please always ask us afterwards. Um, you know, all, we're all available. Please, uh, our emails are probably posted. Uh, me on, you know, us on LinkedIn, whatever you want. Uh, but before we go to questions and answers, I do want to shout out all the advocates that are within the New York New York State programs. Every time I come to this or do a speak or or, or a conference. I'm surprised and shocked at how many people don't even know what the victim program is or that there are advocates or what an advocate is. So please look for your local programs, okay? If you don't know it, reach out to us. And advocate for more federal funding. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they're there to help you, okay? They're, they, they know what's going on on the ground with their victims. Bring them into your courtrooms, bring them into your cases. Bring them into your, you know, your precincts, okay? And not only bring them, listen to them. They want to be heard. They are the experts, uh, and they're there to help. So please, please, please reach out and collaborate with them. And one thing that we heard um, during the pandemic, I was getting calls from advocates that when hearings were being done online, that some judges were not allowing advocates to be with the victim online or to participate. And they were calling us and I was calling, God bless Janet Fink at the OCA, she was great. Um, but that, you know, there needs to be consistency so that people know um, these victims, the advocates know what's going on. Um, and they're, they're as much of a help to the court as they are to the victim. Um, because sometimes they can kind of translate what's going on there. So um, that's also an important component. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of amazing statewide coalitions that are dedicated to this work. Uh, NISCATIV, NISCASA, PCANI, um, you know, NISCA. There's so many amazing, a uh, lot of acronyms to know, uh, programs out there that are dedicated to ending violence. So please look into them. Uh, but please, if uh, there's time for questions and answers, uh, uh, please shoot them or them. Uh, my question is relative to law enforcement training. I uh, just two weeks ago took a young woman who was sexually assaulted and was feeling a lot of shame, family, whatnot, right? Uh, we went to an advocacy center first who referred us over to the sheriffs. We went to the sheriff liaison who was a female sergeant. And after the interview was concluded, she said, are you sure you want to do this? This may ruin his life. And this was just two weeks ago. So I, I didn't know how I would report it myself. I was an attorney representing, you know, there just to assist. And then if that's what the liaison is saying from the advocacy center, it makes me very concerned about sending anyone to law enforcement. I think we all like, yeah. <laughs> that is just a horrible thing to hear, especially from a female who is supposed to be advocating. We fund um, advocates that are not police officers in almost every state trooper barracks. Um, we fund a lot of advocates in DA's offices and in uh, police departments, but not enough. Um, we have encouraged them to apply for us um, to get funding for that kind of thing. 
Um, you can certainly always call our office because we will deal with that um, if you would like to, but you could probably reach out to the advocates in your community because they will also deal with that. We do a lot of law enforcement training. We're very connected with um, the Division of Criminal Justice Services, which does the Municipal Police Training Council. Um, we have just reconnected with the NYPD and um, we're gonna be going down and doing extensive training there. Um, you can't fix stupid all the time, uh, you know, but you just keep at it and making sure that people get called out on it because they need to know that um, this is not okay. <laughs> I, I don't think we, we don't have much to say because that's just appalling um, and concerning. Yeah, I am sure. Um, and just reiterate, you know, reach reach out to OVS there. They might fund that program and might be able to provide some feedback and definitely- you know, Do fund sheriff's programs. Um, and so, and other groups locally as well. Um, and, you know, you, there are people in every profession and every role who are, you know, one out of a hundred who might say things that the rest of us don't agree with. So I would also encourage you to reiterate with the client that like that doesn't represent all of those people who are doing any kind of victim advocacy or victim serving work. Also, there's something to be said about training the rest of us and how to um, deal with the client after that happens. Cause I had already built her up in order to make the admission. And then I had to do it all over again. And it was difficult. How do I explain that to the liaison or the advocacy center? So it was very difficult to do. So any training too that can help us handle that when it happens. And it happens quite often with law enforcement. I had it happen to me recently when someone, family friend contacted me for a family member who had been raped and were very unhappy with what they were getting. From so I... And they were like, wow, you don't know everything that's going on here, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out he had raped three other kids. So that's what I'm getting <laughs> and you're my program. So um, I'm sorry that that happened to her, but I'm not completely surprised. So thank you for raising it and let's deal with it. I just wanna quickly mention it's so, it is appalling, and I'm so sorry, but I think a lot of times what we do as advocates, attorneys, whatever, is manage expectations for clients. And so letting them know, I believe you, I trust you, and validating them and say, regardless of what else other people say, know that your, your experience is real, and I'm here to support you. And then I think if you set that stage up, I think it might help in terms of building up and you know building the client up later. But I, I am sorry that she is. And the End Violence Against Women International, Avawi, um, is, I'm on the board, and they have a program called Start by Believing. New York is a start by believing state, but getting your community to become a start by believing, where they work with law enforcement to, to not do what, what happened to her, is maybe a way to get the community kind of galvanized behind this. And on that topic, and I know we got to go. 
but uh, um, uh, create a soft interview room in your areas of, uh, you know, in your precincts, in your law firms, whatever it is, uh, district attorney's offices, where those disclosures can be recorded once and they do not need to disclose again because now you have evidence uh, of that disclosure. So then that problem of, of her, uh, you know, uh, taking back her story uh, wouldn't be wouldn't be a problem. So if you need more information on those, please let me know. I gladly will talk to you about that. Thank you. You feel like music, you know, sort of come in and just warn you about it. But it's such a it's such a fabulous discussion. And and I appreciate all of you being here to educate us on this. And just want to tell you that the the people attending via Zoom are saying the same thing. They're saying this discussion is fabulous for exclamation marks. Um, there's currently 115 people on Zoom. And I do have one question I just want to ask that we received online just so that we, you know, they know we're listening. I do think that you covered it a little bit, um, but just in case, how are we addressing cultural conditioning of IPV victims and educating the greater community and victims themselves? Like how do victims know these services are available to them? So I can, I can share, and again, this is, this is just kind of local to the Capital Region. So um, we, are, we do a lot of outreach. So we do a lot of outreach in schools. We do a lot of outreach in community groups. Um, we do evidence-based evidence um, and evidence-validated prevention education in schools. So there is work being done on the prevention side and also to educate people on you know, laws and rights and, and all of that. So there is work being done there is not enough of it being done uh, because it is, you know, not to go back to the funding thing, but um, unfortunately there's just not a lot of time and money and capacity to do that work. But that is happening in a lot of areas and it's critically important. Um, you know, I often joke and I mean it, I want our prevention program to put the rest of my programs out of business, but we need the, the time and the money and the staff to do that. Yeah, and uh, also uh, OVS, uh, Office of Victim Services, funds numerous grassroots, culturally specific programs. And that's important is that the outreach that they know that their local neighborhood center where people that look like them or come from their areas, they can go speak to them. They can trust them. And it's tabling at events, yeah. you know, yeah. just being present, being out there, being loud and, and you know, a face. Yeah. So those, so those programs do exist. Um, uh, I think Warm New York uh, down in Manhattan, a fabulous program. Um, um, so th those programs do exist and are very important and, and critical. And uh, uh, the other one, uh, another thing is, is like if, when you do have a, a response to uh, an individual that from one of these communities, all it takes is one bad experience for the whole community not to trust you. So make sure you have that, give them the best experience. I do have one more question. I, I hope I do it justice. They are looking for a difference between community-based programs as opposed to state or DA-sponsored advocates and which one should be prioritized in the court system or just generally? Well, they're systems-based, so that's the law enforcement uh, component. There's We have programs in probation offices and DA's offices and law enforcement, and then there's the, the community-based. If you are... Um, involved in a, a case, then you'll probably be assigned an advocate from the um, either the law enforcement or the DAs. If not, then you can go to a, you can also go to a community 
um, organization. Um, and it, it's really where you feel comfortable. Like where does the person, if they, if they don't feel comfortable with the advocate at the DA's office, for example, then they should feel free to, um, to get information from the DA's office or from us about what programs are available in the community. Okay. And also there's no like requirement that they have to work with one advocate nope. program or another. They can work with one, both, or they can, you know, find someone else in a, in a completely different area. And one program may not provide all the wraparound support and services of another, right? So that, that uh, you know, uh, law enforcement-based program may not have therapists, counselors, housing, case managers, attorneys, you know, so there's other services that they would be eligible for as well. And if somebody wants to apply for financial compensation and there's, let's say, no DV program in their county, they can go to any of our funded programs to apply for compensation. They cannot be turned away no matter what their crime victim issue is. But really quick difference between the community-based advocate and the assistance based advocate. And, and I know the question was about prioritization. I, I don't have an answer to that, but I do want um, you to remi remind the, the client um, sometimes the assistant-based advocates do not have the same level of confidentiality as community-based advocates. So, so if you're dealing with someone, a client from whatever culture who cannot, for safety reasons, um, cooperate with the prosecution of the case, maybe the community-based advocates, uh, sorry, the community-based advocates might be better for them as opposed to assistant-based advocate. Just to, just to clarify that DV advocates, uh, you know, um, state certified DV advocates are privileged. It's just how an attorney's privileged with a client, we're privileged with them as well. So that's why uh, Remo was saying that. Thank you. That's a good point. And um, I think that's it for right now. I will give you 10 minutes to question them at will. But first, I do want to give code for the second portion of the uh, this program. It's identity, ID. E-N-T-I-T-Y, identity. And it's 11-11, uh, so we'll come back at, I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> Thank you.
Is there a way for me to change my background? Someone just chatted that they see my home, uh, an anonymous person. I don't care. All they see is the background. But is there a way for me to change it without shutting this thing down? Hello, Judge Morganstone. One can... moment. Just so you know, we can hear you, Judge. All right. I'm sorry. I'll mute myself. <laughs> All right, James, we're ready to start. That's my husband, I can do that. Um, all right, so we're ready to start and welcome back. Um, our first two panels describe the issues and the response from a service perspective. We'll turn now to the legal and the court perspective and moderating that panel as a person who I'm honored to call my judge and my boss, um, the Honorable Rebecca Slezak. Justice Slezak, um, 
has extensive experience of 16 years in family court as a court attorney before becoming the judge in 2020 and is the first female Supreme Court judge in Montgomery County since it was established in 1784. So it only took 235 years. Um, but here we are today and we're happy to have her. Um, help me welcome Judge Slezak. I know. I'm just trying to remove distractions. <laughs> well, good morning. Um, this this panel discussion that we've had today is just, I think, amazing. Um, I was a court attorney in family court for 16 years, and it's just it it kind of brings back memories, some good, some bad, from from my experience there. Um, but in listening to today, and we did have a member of our audience point out that women are a lot of times discounted or just second class or just not listened to at all. And it brought back, um, I listened to selected shorts. I don't always remember the actual story or anything, but sometimes a line sticks with me. And there was a story about an elderly woman who had raised her kids, was widowed, and she really didn't have any function in society anymore. And no one was really listening to her. And she has a breakdown at one point where she stands up, teary-eyed, and says, I am a human being. And that's what I think we have to remember, that the people that are coming to us in court, which is a very blunt instrument, court is something that we have to listen to both sides. We have to be there and you know, we have to go, what's the title of the case? Who's present? We have to do you know roll call, who's in the room, who's represented, who's not represented and arraign people, give them their rights. And then we expect the person who is a victim to open up and tell us about the sexual violence that occurred to her with security officer and maybe somebody else in the background, the clerk and the judge all looking at her. <laughs> I don't think that that's really a way to get somebody to open up and tell us what is the problem so that we can help solve it. We have to, as judges, look at these people, look at the body language, look at the case. Have they had six kids in six years? Six, nine months to produce a child. Somebody that's been pregnant that many times with that soon after each pregnancy, that might be something that you might want to look at. So we have to kind of look at what's in front of us because we don't know what we don't know, which was something Judge Rumsfeld, or not Judge Rumsfeld, um, Mr. Rumsfeld said, it was picked on a little bit, but he's right in the sense that we don't know what is coming before us in a case. And we have to kind of work with what's presented in the courtroom, what's presented by the attorneys, those advocates that were here earlier, telling us what they do and why they're there, and think about what is the culture that this person is coming from, does that person who is a victim have the ability to speak out or are they going to feel that they cannot say those things? So, and I also um, want to point out that there's a song, Charlie Rich, he, he passed away and it's behind closed doors. No one knows what goes on behind closed doors, except for your local family court judge. He or she is going to know a lot about what goes on there, but not everything. And that's where those question marks come up. 
that's where people don't want to necessarily speak out openly in open court on the record in open court is a frightening concept. But if you can be a judge who listens and pays attention and thinks about things in a way that says, why doesn't that make sense to me? And not be judgmental. And remember that all of the people in that courtroom are a human being. They have a right to be heard and to have assistance and to live a safe life. So with that, I'm gonna introduce our panel and most of us are integrated domestic violence court related. It's not everything that we do, but it's a big part of what we do. And the integrated domestic violence court is unique in the sense that it brings in all the cases and gives us a little bit more of a picture of what this family is doing and what services might be necessary. Um, we have with us today, the Honorable Brian D. Burns, Supreme Court Justice in Otsego County, who is the IDB judge, the Integrated Domestic Violence Court. And we have Carrie Bodeheimer, who's the Rensselaer County Integrated Domestic Violence Coordinator. And joining us via technology is the Kings County Supreme Court Justice, Esther Morgan Stern, who presides over the IDB court in Brooklyn. And it is an honor no offense to our other panelists, an honor to have Judge Morgan Stern with us because she is got an extensive knowledge base. So good morning and welcome. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and, and this is directed to Judges Morgan Stern and Burns. How have cultural differences or barriers played out in the cases you have seen? Who wants to start with Morgan Stern? Why don't we start with you? All right. I just want to give a little background first. Uh, I've been doing this work for close to 30 years. I started out in the uh, Kings County first uh, misdemeanor domestic violence court, and we've come a long way. Uh, we have zero tolerance for domestic violence. And so if there's an order of protection, if there's any uh, injury, there's mandatory arrest. So that was uh, not always the case. And someone earlier mentioned the Nicholson case. Uh, we've come a long way since ACS removed children for being present, present during a domestic violence incident. We're very fortunate in the New York City. Um, we have five boroughs and five justice centers and the uh, different cultures have access to advocates in each of these justice centers. And we are also fortunate in uh, the city to have resource coordinators in every one of our IDV parts. And so everybody in my part is represented. We have uh, institutional attorneys who are cross-trained. So nobody is left without representation in the part. Um, in terms of cultural, I get my best information from the attorneys for the children who um, don't substitute judgment unless there's a reason, but um, I get my best information as to what's going on in the home through them. And culturally, the one uh, incident that stands out the most in my mind is when I did a Lincoln hearing with the child around 10 and an Orthodox Jewish child who said to me, I can't go through this. My parents can't go through this. I'm never going to get married. <clears throat> I'm from that culture as well. And so I understood where she was coming from because the culture is no one should know your business. And if you want to get married in this environment, you need to keep your business to yourself. And that highlighted for me through the attorney for the children, how culture really affects what we do. 
Also, uh, in doing the trials, one of the earlier panelists talked about um, hospital records and how uh, taking these interviews and how not always are those important, but the importance of a paper trail is so important because when we try these cases, the uh, DAs are going to make Molyneux applications and ask that prior bad acts be introduced. So the paper trail is really important to have that to present and generally will allow the history to come in and how their life had um, evolved from when the relationship commenced. And so they can talk about their culture and how they were treated. Um, that's basically how I see how culture plays in and um, the ability in our parts to get the information from so many different sources. We also have the domestic violence registry, which tells us if the uh, defendant had a prior history of domestic violence with the same complainant, with a different complainant, we have their rap sheet so we can see what their history was. And so we are very fortunate in the, the city of New York to have all of these resources. I did travel to Korea uh, and I was invited by the Human Rights Commission. Uh, domestic violence is not a crime there. And I lectured to police officers, um, DAs, and if a uh, victim calls with a gun to her head, they'll say it's a private matter. We can't intervene. So uh, again, culture plays a big part in, in everything that we do and we're very sensitive to the needs of the different cultures that appear before us. From my perspective, there, there's two significant barriers. And the first is internal. Uh, the language that we've used was uh, culturally humble. Uh, and I think that's exactly right. Uh, I believe that there's a tendency among judges who are often called upon to answer the questions, they feel like we know all the answers to all the questions. And we don't, we don't know everything. Uh, so as, as judges, we need to remain culturally humble and, and intellectually curious, want to learn about the cultures of the people that we're dealing with. Um, and, and again, to me, that's, that's an internal barrier. The external barrier is, uh, how, how to be sensitive, how to learn about the different cultures. Uh, and the best example I can give is, is a case I actually had. Uh, a woman came into court and she was seeking an order of protection and she had every uh, outward appearance of being uh, a middle-class person. Um, you know, she appeared neatly dressed, well-spoken, intelligent. Um, and was asking for an order of protection, but she was really very hesitant to. And uh, it, it's terribly important for judges to meet with people who are asking for orders of protection. I know how busy all the judges are, but through that initial ex parte communication, which is allowed under these circumstances, she, she advised me that she was a member of a, a certain religious group. She had tried to go to her um, religious elders with this problem, and they first said, you need two witnesses before we even consider hearing what you have to say. And if you in fact can bring in those witnesses and convince us uh, that you've been the victim of abuse, you'll have to apologize to your husband in public for making him discipline you. The alternative was that she would be shunned, which means she would lose not only her husband, uh, which she was okay with. Um, but her family was a member of this group. Her parents would not be allowed to speak with her 
or to even acknowledge her presence if they saw her out in the community. Her brothers and sisters would not be allowed to speak with her or even acknowledge her presence if they just ran into each other. Her entire community was faith-based, so she would lose every member of her family, every member of a potential support group, and her reluctance to go forward with this family offense was put into an entirely different light as she started to explain um, these differences. Um, so again, be humble in, in not thinking you know everything. And you know, maybe you know someone from a different culture. It doesn't mean you know everything about the culture. Um, ask questions, uh, try to learn. Um, but that's the only way to overcome the barriers. Thank you. <clears throat> is the court system equipped to properly identify and handle these types of cultural dynamics that are presented in the courtroom? Morgan Stern? Again, given the resources we have, by the time I get a case, it's gone through the criminal court. I do have the domestic violence registry. I do have the rap sheet. The DA has referred them to the Justice Center where they've met advocates to help them with housing, immigration. Um, there's a program in New York with NYCHA, the housing authority, if the lease is in one party's name and they need another apartment, they'll set that up for them. By the time they come to my part, I have the criminal case, I have the family case, I have the divorce, ACS has done an investigation, I have the report. And so I have a lot of information in terms of what's going on. Again, I'll assign the attorney for the child, I'll get the information from them. And through the ACS reports, I will have um, the CPS worker having spoken to the collaterals. So I will get a lot of information from so many different places. Um, I feel by the time a case comes to me and I've seen the parties with their attorneys conference the cases, I have a pretty good idea of what this, um, how this case is going to proceed. And so the criminal case proceeds one way that the DA has their obligation to provide the um, corroborating affidavits and uh, now those cases move forward. But every time the criminal case is on, every time the matrimonial case is on, the family case is on, and all of the parties are before the court. And this information gets screened to me through the attorneys. Additionally, I have the um, resource coordinator there who's attempting to get the information to the court as well. So I believe that by the time I get to make a decision, I have about 900 cases currently pending in my part. 99% of them are resolved by stipulation or uh, sending the defendants to batter intervention programs, alcohol and drug treatments. And we are also the compliance part. So we'll have to keep coming back while on probation. We're monitoring them. I believe I have as much information as I possibly could through all of the advocates um, that are in my part regularly. I'm so jealous. <laughs> no, Judge, Judge Morgan Stern has spent more than the last 20 years. She not only has the first, but the biggest, busiest uh, integrated domestic violence court in the state. And that's so much a direct result of her passion and her work uh, to build that program over 20 years. Ours is three years old. We started in December of 2019, and you all know what happened in March of 2020. Um, I have one resource coordinator who's here with me today, Ms. Samantha Mani. She serves as my IDV resource coordinator 
as well as the Otsego County Opioid Intervention Court Resource Coordinator, the Otsego County Family Treatment Court Resource Coordinator, and the Otsego County uh, Adult <laughs> Criminal Drug Treatment Court Coordinator. Um, we don't have the resources in rural upstate New York. I'm from Cooperstown, New York. Um, while we may not have all the same resources, uh, the court system does create the opportunity to obtain those resources. For example, um, Mr. Rivera, who moderated our last panel, uh, is embedded and his group is embedded uh, in our court system now. His advocates are in court uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we work with him to set up an office. So he has an advocate with an office immediately outside our family court hearing rooms that staffed with someone there. Uh, are you back to full time there? No. Yeah. Um, so you can build those types of resources and you'll receive the support of the court system. They'll uh, encourage you, allow you. Um, they may not be able to pay for everything, uh, but as a judge, you can go out into the community and, and try to make those connections. And again, you know, Judge Morgenstern has a wealth of resources available, but she uses them. She has connections with them. She has a direct linkage with them, uh, which, which is phenomenal. Harry, as an IDB coordinator, do you think that the court system is equipped to properly handle the cultural dynamic? I think we put forth a good effort. Um, I think as both the judges said, it is definitely based on our outside resources. Um, as the last panel said, I think the coordinated collaboration is uh, the, the biggest thing. Uh, it allows us to um, bridge system gaps, uh, see where those needs are. It allows us to um, look at the systems as well as the community uh, collaboration, those churches, um, humane societies, things that are outside of the box that uh, can give us additional resources to help. Okay. And I think, I think one of the things that is missing on how do you spot an issue? That's what the judge, I think the question goes to, how do you spot that issue? And we have to remember as a judge, we can't always solve the problem, but we can spot it and hopefully connect to the right service and get those services in place. And I, I also hail from a rural county that does not have a lot of services. Our main service provider is St. Mary's Healthcare, the hospital in Amsterdam. And it's on the eastern part of our county. And we have a lot of people from the western end of the county that are about 35 miles away. The transportation is almost impossible. So we have, we have to know what services are in place. And that's where I think the IDV coordinator is good and the IDV court is good because we start to recognize what services will we need and maybe we need to also figure out how to get transportation. So uh, let's see. What sort of cultural biases are systemic in the court system, perhaps mirroring public perceptions and misperceptions? Ms. Morgenstern? Look, um, in Brooklyn, a very diverse community as well. There's extreme wealth and there's extreme poverty. But on a daily basis, when I come into the courtroom, and it's because I believe um, many uh, African-Americans and Latinos live in apartment buildings and the victim is not always the one calling the police. 
So there is a sea of Black and Latino faces in my courtroom on a regular basis. Uh, I recognize, of course, that there's domestic violence across every socioeconomic um, field, or, or uh, as we say, but uh, this is what I'm faced with on a daily basis. And of course, I know that it happens everywhere. A lot of my DAs that are assigned specifically to my part are also minorities, as well as the um, victim service agencies, as well as the um, cross-trained um, defense attorneys. The DA in Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez, will have his line DAs reduce the um, criminal counts very often to uh, counts that are not deportable offenses. So if a defendant is taking a plea to a felony or a misdemeanor that will cause them to be deported or be deportable, they may allow the defendant to add a, a plea to a lesser included or a similar level of offense, but that's not a deportable offense. So that's to his credit as well in trying to uh, manage the uh, caseload that they have. Um, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. And so when I look at each person, I look at them as individuals and I'm very conscious of that. Uh, but this is basically what I face. We have interpreters in our um, in Kings County from many, many languages, but mostly on the staff, it's uh, Spanish as well as Russian. We have a, a large Russian population. We can access through the UN many, many, many other languages, but it is telling that we do have Spanish interpreters that are on our staff. So I am definitely conscious of the um, population that's before the court, but I do uh, get the criminal cases. So I know the criminal history. I see what's going on in the family cases. Um, having sat in the family court as well before we did IDB, I know that um, perpetrators of domestic violence will often file in family court. There's no fee for that and keep filing and they're not showing up on the return date as a way to harass or file a custody petition when the victim has filed a family offense petition just to uh, have them or try to influence them to drop their cases. So in my part in IDV, the attorneys do speak outside before they come before the bench and the attorneys basically know each other because there's the same DAs and the same uh, cross-trained attorneys, but they'll never say before the bench, uh, we have a global solution and she's gonna drop the O if he'll, if he'll consent to custody. So they're very aware of what the requirements are in the courtroom. And again, we are the compliance part. So we're monitoring. If someone's rearrested on my watch, the penalty is gonna be escalated. I may set bail or I may uh, have them do a uh, battery intervention program prior to a conviction, relying on the Bon Giovanni case, which allowed the judges to do that. And we continue monitoring um, and thankfully, in my 28 years doing this work, we haven't had any homicides. And again, the lethality studies say most often it's when the uh, victim leaves, decides to leave where the, um, where the danger goes up. So we look at all of that and, and when I'm making decisions on these cases. So, so I might have understood the question, I might have the question a little differently. Uh, my, my concern about the cultural biases are on, on the part of the court itself and the court staff. Um, and, and the reality is, for uh, illustration purposes, uh, a six foot four black guy who comes in and asks for an order of protection because he's being abused is likely to be looked at 
by everyone in the system differently than a five foot one uh, white girl. Uh, that's just the reality of it. And it's not just in the judge's part. The cultural bias starts at the front door of the courtroom, courthouse. When someone comes through security, our security officers have to understand that people who are coming into the court may be coming there. In my building, we share a clerk's office with the court to file a petition. Their job isn't just to protect the judge. So they shouldn't be big, scary people who are suspicious of everyone. They need to be a welcoming presence. One of the earlier panelists spoke of um, the distrust in law enforcement. If you're a big, scary person at the front desk and you're already mistrusted, people sometimes just turn around and walk away. When they get to the clerk's office, the clerks, the frontline clerks, can't roll their eyes and say, you're here to file your seventh petition. You dismissed the last six. Really? I'm going to have to spend the next hour on your petition. Um, you know, it, and it goes throughout the entire case. Um, we, we want victims to feel and be safe, but feel safe. So set up a separate waiting room for them within line of sight of security desk so they know that they're safe. When you call the case, make sure that the, it's not just a general call and they walk in together. Say, I want the respondent brought in first, have him sit next to his attorney or have her sit next to her attorney. Once they're seated, go out and get the petitioner, bring them in. We're gonna put them on the other side of the courtroom so there can't be any you know, eye contacting or any of those uh, uh, subtle messages that can be so powerful. But the, the cultural bias, I, I guess, comes back to um, not letting the, the, the bias that's inherent in those who work in the system affect how they treat people who are there asking for help. Thank you. Can I just add something in terms yes. of the core, the core officers, every other part in our system, the officers rotate, except for the IDV court, where we have one sergeant and uh, three officers on every single day. It's the same person. So they know who should be sitting next to whom. And uh, we have about 60 to 100 cases on a day, Judge Burns. So no one's escorted in unless there's a real problem and they've notified Safe Horizon and my resource coordinator. But having the security, and of course we have security outside the courtroom and officers sitting at the elevator. Um, but in the courtroom itself, we do have one sergeant three officers and everybody knows they're there and the officers know who they are. And so in terms of that, we don't have that um, issue. Thank you. That, and that, and I think that that's also answers, like if the judge notices a cultural barrier or nuance that an attorney missed, what can the judge do about it? I think that was sort of answered by what you had said, but is there anything that you'd like to add Judge Burns to? This is so difficult. Um, you know, I used to be an attorney. I love attorneys. I work with attorneys all the time. Some trial attorneys try to make every case about themselves and it's their show. Uh, and for those attorneys who are laughing right now, I know you're all thinking about these one It's It's really, really difficult to deal with an attorney who is not paying attention to their client's individual needs. Um, and uh, you know, there are different strategies that you can use. Maybe that's a case if you don't conference your own cases, your court attorney does. Maybe that's a case where you go in and sit at the conference and ask the attorney, uh, did you make this linkage? Did you refer your client to this service? Have you done these things? What about this issue? Um, but uh, 
you know, it's again from my perspective, it's it's difficult as a judge because we we also have an ethical obligation to remain an impartial uh, arbiter of the facts, uh, and and we we can't become the the advocates for, for either side. Judge Morganson, did you have anything to add to that? No, not really. I mean, again, I try to be neutral in every case. I'm looking at each case. If each case has a family fall within that falls the criminal case, the family case, the divorce, we don't mix them all together. So we call the criminal case, the defendant has every right that they have if they were trying a criminal case and then another at the court. They're entitled to a jury trial. Uh, their attorneys have to advocate for them. Very often that same criminal defense attorney is now on the family case since they're cross-trained in the institutional uh, offices. And they may be aware that there's violence at home and they may want supervised visitation for their client to have. And they'll advocate for that if they've looked at their complaint, if they've seen the complaint and recognized the level of violence, the strangulation, the stalking, et cetera. So the attorneys, certainly those that appear in my part regularly are, are aware of that. And so they're gonna advocate for their clients knowing that there has been violence in the home. I have a follow-up on that because when you're doing a case in IDV and family court, you can do the fact-finding part and then you can do a separate disposition on any of the cases. Even a custody can be split. Usually they collapse all into one trial. But in IDV court, you do have that criminal case where there's some extra rights for an accused person that they don't have to self-incriminate. Whereas in a divorce or a custody case, people tend to talk more and what they say could be a problem in their criminal matter. Do you then in those types of cases structurally like handle the criminal case and make your findings and then work with the custody and visitation and separate that disposition? Because then you've made your findings. Then you can say, I'm not being biased. I already found that. Again, 99% of our cases settle. So we don't get to that. But when it does happen, where a defendant has an open criminal case and they want the fact finding on the O docket, the uh, order of protection docket, we may adjourn that. But if you have a very talkative client, most of them have 99% are represented, their attorney is gonna tell them not to speak. And I will say to them if they're speaking and their criminal case is open, like you know, I saw her this weekend, she let me see the kids. I will put on the record, the DA is sitting there Everything you say can and will be used against you. So watch what you say. So I'm very, very conscious of that. If I can just backtrack for a second. Sure. One of the strategies that we have employed um, when we have attorneys who are maybe, in our opinion, missing things. Um, uh, again, my resource coordinator, she's wonderful in many ways, including research. Um, before court's over, she'll typically be handing me something she just pulled off the internet. Uh, and I'll make copies and say, if anyone would like to actually know about the impacts of uh, you know, brain development in children uh, who are exposed to domestic violence, read this. Uh, and um, we, we had an experience recently where an attorney actually took it, read it, never said anything to me about it, but two weeks later was in a different court. And the judge was like, I don't know what got into that attorney, but he was spouting off about, no, my client is a positive impact. And we went, it's, it's working. So the, and Judge Morgan, she, she referenced the additional training for the attorneys who worked in the IDV court. 
Uh, that's that's part of that, but I think that may be one of the strategies to help when the attorneys are not where we wish they would be on these issues. Thank you. And Carrie, here's your chance to shine, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I need you to explain to us what an IDV court is, how do you get cases into that docket, what role does culture play in the types of cases that are selected for IDV, and what is your role, and what is the biggest challenge? Multi-part, but... <laughs> Sounds about right for the resource <laughs> coordinator. Uh, so uh, the integrated domestic violence court is a problem solving court that's utilizing the one family, uh, one judge model. It coordinates proceedings for families that are affected by domestic violence by bringing the uh, intimate partner criminal cases along with the matrimonial and family court cases uh, that involve one family uh, before a single judge. And we utilize a comprehensive approach that uh, focuses on victim safety, offender accountability, and really the service linkage for all members of the family uh, that coordinates uh, the partnership between the court, the system partners, um, as well as the community partners. Uh, how cases get there. Uh, the resource coordinator is the one that primarily does the research for identifying uh, allegations of criminal domestic violence between intimate partners are going to form the threshold with uh, the components from those two other cases. So uh, your criminal cases, the bulk of our cases are misdemeanors. Uh, we do take felonies and violations as well. Uh, your family court are going to be your custody, visitation, uh, abuse, neglect, family offenses, which are your civil protection orders. Um, as well as paternity, and then uh, your matrimonial cases, so your divorce and any ancillary matters uh, that were filed uh, with the Supreme Court. We do have a uh, search system, so we have a system that identifies potential matches uh, from the criminal side and the family court side. The resource coordinator will uh, gather some more information on those cases to determine uh, whether those are an appropriate match. Uh, from there, we'll gather the information, we'll get some more information from the attorneys that are on those individual cases, and we'll present that to the judge for the judge to ultimately make a determination. And we will look into some other factors where both those cases are uh, in their individual courts to make sure that removing it to IDB is going to be most beneficial for those cases. Uh, once the case is uh, determined to be an appropriate IDV case, a uh, removal order is drafted. The judge will sign that removal order and that removes those cases from the individual courts uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, our IDV judges are acting Supreme Court judges and uh, they will hear the case. We, we do keep the cases uh, calendared together, uh, but we do hear them separately. And uh, you know that is just to make sure that we are um, Judicial integrity is kept. Uh, what we'll do is we'll conference criminal cases. Uh, we will hear the criminal case usually first, and then we will hear the family court component case after that. Uh, once a criminal case is resolved, um, or I'm sorry, I should say once the family court case is resolved, uh, the victim doesn't have to continue to come back to court on those criminal matters. It would just be for any um, post-conviction or violations or things like that. Um, we have dedicated attorneys for our IDB court. So the defense attorneys, the ADAs, our AFCs, uh, we are very fortunate uh, to be teamed up with law enforcement as well as Unity House, which is our local domestic violence agency. And we do have um, advocates that are in-house for all of our court cases. 
I'm sorry, this, the second part. Of it was, it was, what are the challenges? Um, oh, I got to get the question back I, up here. What, what, role you know, what, what is the biggest challenge with, in, in your role, and what is the biggest challenge with trying to get a case into IDV to make sure it's a good fit for that docket? Um, you know, I think, again, looking at where the case is, um, most of the intimate partner violence cases coupled with those custody cases are going to be appropriate matches. Um, you know, again, getting the information uh, together as to where cases are, where the case is going, and, and sitting down with the judge. Uh, I think the biggest challenge um, culturally, uh, you know, is, is probably language access. Uh, I like to point out, and I think all of the Previous panels did a great job at um, the intersection of culture, that it's not just race and ethnicity, that you know, we're looking at things like such sexual orientation, ability, location, familial makeup. Uh, there's so many identities that can impact uh, safety and wellness of people. And I think looking at that all together, uh, getting buy-in from all of the other partners, uh, you know, we have to look at it with a critical lens. And I think sometimes we're all focused in what our particular role is, and we have to look at the, the larger picture to be able to um, you know, help the families that we're working with. Thank you. Do either Judge Morgan or Judge Burns want to add anything to? She nailed it. Yeah, she did, I, I, oh. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question that is, in my head, this is the law versus cultural norms. We all know what statutes are and what's expected and, and we have all the laws of the state of New York behind us when we're on the bench. And then we have the people coming in who have a cultural norm. And I think Judge Connors had said, if this is how we grew up, this is what's comfortable to us. What do we know? And what is our own identity? And when we come to court, sometimes the judge has to tell somebody, you need to change. You have to change in order for this to work. And we all fear change. Some of us a little less than others, but some people, as Judge Burns noted in the case that he mentioned, this woman who came to court, she was gonna lose everything, her family, her support, all of it, in order to choose a better life for herself, a safer life. That's a big ask from a court. So with that as our thought process, there have been cases, and in the CLE materials, there's an article about two cases in which the cultural evidence has been presented in defense. In other words, my culture made me do it. And I think Sumaya had mentioned earlier about honor killings. Is it cultural? Is it something that's acceptable? So in fact, there is one celebrated case in which an immigrant from China beat his allegedly adulterous wife to death with a claw hammer, so successfully asserted the cultural defense and was convicted of a lesser charge than murder and sentenced to probation. Judge Morgenstern or Judge Burns, have you <clears throat> seen a defendant attempt to use such a defense or maybe you've seen it played out a little bit differently, not necessarily a defense, but almost an ignorance of, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, I, was a county court. I was a county court judge for 20 years. In upstate, the county courts deal with the, the felony level offenses. Uh, so I, I have had that experience and 
my response was to uh, rather emphatically say that's not a defense uh, and it's not relevant and you're not going to put that before the jury. Um, and um, well, I'm not running for office. We have to be careful what we say at times. I think I can say this. I don't think I would have sentenced that person to probation anyways. So even if the, the jury went from murder maybe down to a manslaughter first, that still could have been a sentence of 15 years. So my concern isn't at only in a case like that, that he was allowed to assert that as a defense, but that he then got a sentence of probation, which is concerning to me because that means from a judicial perspective, the judge brought into it as well and said, you know, there's 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 no reason to incarcerate this person. I look at it um, again for the paper trail. One of the other panelists talked about a, a victim coming in and they're filling out a form and they're merely looking up, barely looking at them and they're just ticking off. But those records, if they come in, they come in for diagnosis and treatment if a doctor or a nurse is filling this out. And that can be used at trial to prove the, uh, the history. And that's very important. Also, um, I would obviously, the defense is going to try to put on whatever they put on, but that's just not a defense that would anyone I don't think would buy. That culturally, it's okay to you know smash someone in the head with a, a, a dumbbell. In fact, we can use the egregious domestic violence in deciding upward distribution on our matrimonial cases since we look at them so um, so seriously. So I don't see. Um, how that kind of cultural defense would uh, in any way play to a jury. I can't see that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's, to me, it was a little shocking too. Like you said, the judge must have allowed that to come in. I, I'm not sure how, but um, although the counter to that is what if the victim, someone who is battered, fights back? and causes someone to die as a result of their fighting back. Is that something that you would consider as a defense, a justification? That's the statute, that's the law now. We could, um, in sentencing, we can look at the victim and if the defendant, if they were a victim of domestic violence and there's evidence of that, we can use that in, uh, in our sentencing to lower our sentence. Um, okay. Yes, you're right. Right, and we also have programs that, that we use. Uh, what are those? No, I agree. I agree. Okay. <clears throat> Is evidence about cultural practices admissible in New York? And to your knowledge, has the Court of Appeals ever addressed that? I'm not aware. The only cases I'm aware of where they address it are in the context of um, religious expression. Um, and the Court of Appeals is, uh, from my perspective or my understanding, the closest they've really come to addressing it uh, squarely is to say that judges aren't to examine the validity of someone's religious beliefs, uh, but rather if they're sincerely held. Kind of period, full stop, do with that as you will in your case. But I'm not, I'm not personally aware of any cases where they've addressed the issue of a cultural difference being the defense. I'm going to go back to the Molyneux application where I'll allow a victim to testify as to the history of the relationship. And so it may come out, we live like this, he told me this, 
etc. And our life was that he was the boss and I did whatever he said and I blame myself if something didn't come out. I may allow that testimony before the jury coming from the uh, victim in a Molino type application to show the history of the relationship and the nature of the relationship. I, I, I want to add that um, Judge Cortez, who I worked for when I was at in family court, who was the judge in Montgomery County, we had a case where a woman came in and she was wearing a hijab. All you could see was her eyes. And he when she was going to testify, he wanted her to take that off so he could see her. He, and he, I was, I, 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 I tried to explain that it's a sincerely held belief she could not take that off in public. So he's like, but how am I gonna assess credibility? I said, you're gonna have to <laughs> voice, you're gonna have to look at her eyes and you're gonna have to piece it together. And it was very difficult to find, there was no case that I could find on point out of New York. I did find some case in the federal um, cases that talked about the sincerely held belief. He ultimately did not ask her to remove her hijab and he allowed her to testify with only seeing her eyes and it was it was hard for him because he's like i don't know how, and i just said you're just gonna have to feel you're gonna have to figure that out for yourself what you can can take in from that person just seeing their eyes um and, and you know he, he grew up in america in a family that you didn't do stuff like that you didn't wear something like that it wasn't part of his culture and it was something that he had to deal with as a judge. And those types of cultural barriers do come up in court and play out in a realistic, you know, what do you do? So is evidence about, oh, I did that one. Okay. What more can the court system do to educate judges and attorneys about the impact of cultural dynamics in domestic violence cases? Judge Morgenstern? We hold regular um, stakeholder meetings with all of our um, stakeholders in the park, probation, defense bar, DAs, um, social service agencies. And so we talk about these issues. And of course, we've all taken those courses that the OCA requires us to take. Um, and we're in New York City, such a diverse population. Uh, we're exposed to all of the different cultures. And we need to be sensitive to them. Again, as a child of Holocaust survivors, it's very important to me as well. As judges, we're part of a larger judiciary. We're individuals, but we're part of a judiciary. And leadership starts at the top. Uh, it's uh, incredibly encouraging today for me to sit here and see people like Judge Connolly, who's the administrative judge. Where do you go? Uh, oh, right there. Okay, I don't have my glasses. I'll get there. I mean, he's admitted, he's in, he's a supervisor of every Supreme County Family Court judge in a seven county area. Um, he's here today. He didn't have to be. That's leadership. Justice Gary is the presiding justice in the appellate division for the third department. We have twenty eight counties. Uh, justice Fisher, uh, Lisa Smith is here from the division of office. The, I always get it wrong. Office of Policy and Planning. Family Violence Matters. She's our chief counsel from New York City. Uh, what can judges do to become better informed? Again, I think it starts with the leadership within the judiciary and like, man, they're all here today. It's awesome. Gary, do you have anything to add as to how we could better educate the court system? 
I think as the resource coordinator, we really have a unique role as the court liaison. Um, I've had judges call me a wrangler uh, in, in past years. And I, you know, it really is the asset mapping, the identifying what your strengths are in your community, who, um, you know, what's working, what's not working, uh, building those relationships, uh, you know, transparency, accountability, uh, just the access to resources. And I, I think that, um, you know, the stakeholders uh, meetings are a huge way to bring the community together. Um, you know, I know met well last year um, through community collaboration, through OCA, uh, you know, OPDV, OVS, uh, CJI, uh, you know, use those resources. They are willing to come to your courts, come to your agencies, uh, train you, uh, you know, teach you new things. Um, and, and I promise that, you know, those collaborations, sometimes they're slow. It doesn't feel like they're always working, but, you know, uh, light bulb will go off at, you know, occasion and you'll build this momentum and, and it is really exciting, you know, to watch. And uh, I've been with the IDV and DV courts for seven years. We've had a lot of turnover, uh, both with judges, uh, both in our agencies, uh, with our community partners. And I think, um, you know, just rebuilding and, and not letting things go wayside uh, is, you know, the way to, to really make things beneficial and, and help the families that we're trying to work with. Great. And I, that finishes the formal part of this panel. Um, I, do I get the CLE code now? <laughs> yes, the CLE code for this panel is WORLDVIEW, all one word, W-O-R-L-D-V-I-E-W, WORLDVIEW. Views. And at this point, does anyone have any questions? Did you raise your hand? I don't know what you Hi, I have a comment and then also a question for Judge Burns and Judge Morgan Stern. Um, just looping back to our previous panel, you know, as a former legal, civil legal services defender um, and now a judge, I am utterly shocked oftentimes of the disconnect between the provider community that I know that is out there and then how it is that the judiciary has interacts essentially with that. Um, I'm a judge in Schenectady, I'm desperate for an IDV court and we have individual, we don't have individual case assignment, we rotate terms. And so oftentimes I know that the first time I see someone who is likely a victim, maybe the last time I see them or I won't see them until I cycle out of back into the term three months later again. And so I'm curious as to what your advice is in terms of starting those kind of stakeholder meetings or allowing the stakeholders to be more receptive to the judiciary participating in the general discussion, obviously not about specific cases. Judge Morgan, sir. Um, we invite everybody. We'll never have a one-sided stakeholder meeting. So we have the DAs there, probations there, the defense bars there, uh, the institutionals, the 18B attorneys. We'll have the, uh, of course, my court attorneys and so the resource coordinators. So everybody's at the table. And so the information is being shared. Uh, we don't talk about individual cases in terms of uh, how it's going to proceed, but we certainly know how it flows. And if an attorney comes into IDV, and I'm doing this, I said, a very long time, who hasn't been in IDV before, as soon as they open their mouth, we know they've never done these cases before. Um, so there's a way to look at the case. You know your criminal case if you're a defense attorney. You've seen the counts. It's a strangulation, stalking, assault, criminal contempt, endangering. We know the charges. 
And then they have the old dockets where the petitioner went to the family court, filled out a petition herself, and it barely matches what the criminal complaint says. And then you have the city petition. So obviously at trial, the defense attorney is going to say, hey, you went to family court, you didn't say any of this. And there's a Look, again, 99% of our cases are settled. The attorneys are very astute. They're mostly everyone is, who's in this field has been doing this a long time. And so we share information. We want to know what's going on. Um, we've had the protocols, best practices. If somebody comes in and wants a copy of their order of protection, they fill out a form, they wait, they get it. I mean, their orders, um, if they want their visitation, their custodies from five years ago, anything that's not uploaded, they can petition, ask the clerks fill out a form and they'll get it. So our best practices, our protocol is very, very well established. And uh, I can't think of anything we could do more other than have more uh, supervised visitation programs that we'll pay for. I'm assigning a lot of 722C orders to uh, pay for those. Uh-oh, Morgan Strange. She froze. Did you have anything to add? Uh, honestly, when we went when to start ours, our district office literally said, contact her uh, and her court attorney, uh, and she was available. Most of the written information, best practices, protocols, manuals, all those things, you turn them over on the back, authored by Esther Morgan, sir. Um, so there's, there's nothing that I can say that she can't say better. She kind of invented the whole thing. Is it, I think there's another question up here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to respond, Judge, uh, to a couple of things. One is on the, um, these DV stakeholder teams are very important and many of them are exist around the state. I just wanna say for everybody here who's part of the court system, we already have an ethics opinion from OCA that judges can participate. It's really important that the judges around the state know that because obviously a lot of things are about ethics opinions. As long as the stakeholder team has invited all sides, our judges can participate. I'm actually in the process of putting together, whoops, sorry, um, a list of DV um, stakeholder teams with the contact person you can reach out to for each county. It's actually for our, um, uh, our ADR teams and I will make sure to get it to you. But you know, there was actually IDV in Schenectady and I think it closed down. So I'd be happy to, you know, try to reinvigorate that with you. Judge Morgenstern, can you hear us? I do now. I don't know how I'm going to say I lost you for a moment, but I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, I, I, I think we had heard everything you were saying, but I'm not sure. Did you have anything more to add? No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I've said enough. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Is there any other questions? Yeah, you can conclude. All right. All right. Um, I'm just going to conclude since we are running behind schedule, but it's such an important discussion. I didn't want to stop it without hearing all the information. 
I want to thank Judge Morganston for joining, joining us again. She is responsible for the model cord of IDV. So she is, she wrote the manual and it's in your CLE materials, um, which is why we have her here. And I do want to congratulate you on your retirement, but also to say, what are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah. um, so hopefully we can take your manual and, uh, you know, make it applicable to all of, all of the New York state. Although like we've heard resources are not as plentiful up here as they are in New York city. Uh, I want to mm -hmm. thank all of the panelists and I want to thank all of you for attending. Uh, hopefully we are more culturally aware and sensitive to the role that culture plays in domestic violence cases. I want to invite you to join us downstairs for lunch provided by Vela Carbone and Vincent and Cops Dipola Silverman. And thank you to the law school for hosting us. Don't forget to turn in your CLE materials for your credits. Thank you. Have a good day.